I was just texting you. You were. I was. What's yeah. this red light district we have behind us? I don't know. I, I saw it. I liked it. I what does it say? It says cigars. Oh, nice. Excellent. Excellent. Get I don't your even GLB. know why I really bother with the uh, the whole background thing, considering you never see it, because all you see is our giant heads. So I could just do this. But that's okay. It adds character to it. But I don't like this. I like the other way. Better. I don't either. It's too yeah. Much. This is way way better. Way better. Oh, I see. You got your uh, your JLB Morelia shirt on. I do. Love it. I represent our our brother in arms, Mr. Jacob Bratz. Oh, look at that THP. And the background matches my brand new Venom Life hat. It does. I need to get a new one. Mine is, I got mine back in Daytona last year. And it's, I think that's going to be the running thing is like every year I get a new Venom Life gear hat because by the time that next Daytona rolls around, that thing needs to be replaced. It's pretty, pretty old, pretty gross. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I'm a, I'm a hat snob. I have, I love hats. I love baseball hats. Um, I probably have over a hundred baseball hats. I have such a hard time finding ones that fit properly. Well, it's because you and I have giant noggins, you know, size right. eight, so eight plus. That's why, I, that's why I love the Venom Life one so much that I got from Brent because it oh, fits yeah. and it fits comfortably and it doesn't look stupid. And you got a, one of the mesh backs, right? Yeah. So I'm not a fan of trucker hats or like mesh back style. So I got this one, which is the Twill, which I remember touching it at Daytona and thinking, oh, I got to go back and buy that. And I just never did. And I procrastinated, procrastinated, procrastinated. And then I saw... They had these nifty new hat clips, which is super cheesy and corny. And I spend most of my day explaining to people what the hell it is. But I thought that was pretty freaking cool. Um, and I was like, you know what? Let me get it. And it says, it says twill on there. And when I think twill, I think of like itchy wool for whatever reason. I don't know why. But this hat is super soft. It It's the same like softness of like a dad hat but it's not a dad hat it has a shell shape to it which is exquisite um but i'm also going to do venom life plug because we haven't really talked about i was going to say it. yeah we, we have a, i just i just placed an order i got three hooks coming from them so excellent. Uh, excellent i use the thp discount so if you need a hat or apparel be it shirts hoodies I think they even have leggings um, that might interest Ryan Cox. Um, uh, hooks, drawer pullers, uh, pretty much anything on the Venom Life Gear site. You use the code THP at checkout, and you get ten percent off everything. Which everything is in the store. Which is awesome because not only are the fans of THP at Snakes and Stogies at Herpeticulture Magazine getting a discount because. We're all part of the snake crew, you know, but you get 10% off. And then for every dollar that you spend <clears throat> with Venom Life gear, they take 10% of your purchase and they donate it to the ASF, you know, in, in, in West Africa. So not only are you getting really cool apparel, repping, you know, the hobby and the culture that we love, you're also getting a hookup from THP and THN and, you know, the magazine stuff, but you're also helping people all over the world, majority in West Africa, but all over the world, treating the most neglected tropical disease in the world, snake bite. So I'm going to try and throw that message out there because, you know, 
Venom Life and the guys that, and gals. That's our boys, that man. That's our, our boys. Yeah. So, but this show is proudly brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. Puget Sound Pythons. Jeff and Kendra. They're right there in the comments hanging out with us. I'm assuming it's Jeff. Might be Kendra. I like to kind of play the guessing game. Might be both. By the end of the show, try and figure out who, who it is. Have a little guess. Uh, yeah, so now there's talk of Cox and the leggings. and I love it. Ryan Cox, not Cox and the leggings, as in like two objects. A, a giant and leggings. Yeah. Yes, a giant rooster that happens to wear leggings. Only a triple. Nice. So, what are we smoking tonight, Big Papa? Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Uh, Tricky Traka, or Mike Rita Tricky Traka. This is the 764. So, this is a 7x64. I'm not a massive, big green gauge guy, but these I've talked about. I've had these previously on another episode, at least once and this size is actually really good this blend works really well in this size it's a long smoke um i'm gonna try and take my time with it and not like make it last the entire show we'll see how i do on that but i like it tonight i got the crown heads las calaveras Ooh, which year is that one this one is 2019 Okay. Let me know how that is, because they've had a few in the past, so every year, for anybody that may not be in the loop as far as what's going on with that, uh, Crown Heads releases Las Calaveras every year. Um, each year, it's a different blend, uh, so it's basically a different cigar each year. Uh, some years they've had in the past, they were absolutely outstanding. There's been a few years uh, kind of off and on within the last four or five where they've been kind of underwhelming. Um, I don't remember which ones were which. We we had them previously in the shop, but it was maybe, I think we got them one year, we didn't get them the next year, and then we got them the year after that. So it's been kind of kind of odd, but they're overall, like Crownhead stuff, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with. I, I really like. Yeah, uh, I would I would agree. And uh, I had whatever the, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know if it was the fourth or fifth year. I don't remember what year that was. But I had one, and I wasn't that impressed. And then somebody told me, like, oh, they change it up, man. You got yeah. to just keep smoking them. I'm like, well, that's a sales gimmick, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, it is kind of frustrating because you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know if it's going to be an, an absolute banger, if it's going to be uh, disappointing. So I know we, like I said, we did them for maybe two or three years and not repeat, like, consecutively. And I don't. Uh, there was one year where they they really just like they hit the shelves and they just sat there. They really didn't do all that well. But yeah, a lot of that is because of the magazines and the blogs and the reviewers and stuff. I mean, that, unfortunately, um, yeah, it's completely subjective. But you know, people are going to listen to the the people that have those platforms. Yeah, of course. And uh, you know, Jeff says that the V cut changed his life. And what's what's funny is I'm I'm not a snob in necessarily the angle of my cut. Like there are some guys and gals that you know break out the friggin' bubble level. You know what I mean? I just yeah. kind of hold it and snip it. But <clears throat> excuse me, but that Calibri V cutter that you gave me has never failed me. But look at that cut. It is that, that a cut ridiculously is great cutter, 
And when I saw those, when we first got them in, I was sure that would be a sixty plus dollar cutter. I was like, "There's no way those things are any any cheaper than sixty bucks." Like I refuse to believe that. They're forty, so very good deal. That's the cheapest cutter, actually. I think they offer. Um, and, and, and it's it's holding up well, dude. We sell a ton of them. Uh, they're, but I, I mean, I, I like them because size wise, they're not huge. Uh, they don't take up a ton of space in your travel case. They are on the heavier side, which also isn't a bad thing because when you're cutting it, my issue with sort of the the Zycar brand stuff is they're often very thin. You know, they're they're a bit thinner than this, and so when you have bigger hands and you you're holding it like this, you know, sometimes it can feel a little uh like unbalanced and it kind of it's just difficult to maneuver. You know, and I mean, I'll tell you, I've done it. I, I'm not bashful. I've held it, and when I pressed. I, I almost like snapped my fingers and the thing yeah. fell on the floor. I, I shot it out of my hand. So the weight and the, the, the thickness of the of the frame of it is is nice. I like it. But I'll be honest, the whole reason for me bringing it up was, hey, that Jeff brought it up, but the cut is perfect on this. And it's a year-old stick. So, or two to year and a half, two years old. So that is a testament to to at least how they do their caps, you know. And I'm I'm typically not that picky as far as my lighters and my cutters. I just want them to work and work consistently. And so that's the nice thing with these Calibris. You know, the one that we originally had at the shop, I think our Oliva rep gave it to us for some reason. And that one was supposedly like 10 years old. And that thing still cut crazy sharp. So nice. that inspired nice. us to start carrying Calibri instead of Sycar. Uh, Sycar used to have like this lifetime warranty on all their stuff where if anything happened to it, you sent it to them and they just replaced it. Even um, like dulling the blade? Yeah, I believe so. But then they changed wow. ownership and that went away. Aww. So Sycar, a lot of people jump ship on Sycar. Um, my one complaint with these V-cutters, uh, I will say, is the spring on these. Like if I drop this on the table right now or even just bang it, it opens up. Like this, the clasp on it doesn't hold very well. And that's really not that big of a deal. I don't carry this around in my pocket too much. Um, and just so everyone knows, like the V cutter thing. So basically you put it in there and it cuts that channel. Like like what you could see with Phil's. And uh, there's really no... Against the wall. Yeah, there's no benefit to a V cutter over a straight cut or a punch. Um, I like it because like Phil was saying, you can cut it and you don't have to really think about it or worry about going too far. Uh, so great cutters, really happy with it. Um, and then my lighter, we got these, uh, what brand are these? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's some sort of generic brand, but we got these little triple flames. I really it's like not, this. It's one. not Vertigo? No, it's a, uh, I know it, it's on the t tip of my tongue. I can't. It's not this is the good. best, the best lighter ever. Vertigo, triple flame. This is my second one because I destroyed the other one over the course of at least at least a year and a half, maybe two mm -hmm. years. But this thing's in my pocket every single day, and it just it's just awesome. Yeah, this one I really like. I like the ergonomics of this one. Like the tank's big, it's heavy, it's all metal construction. It's got a punch on the bottom. It's adjustable. Uh, it's got a nice window on it so I can see where it's at. And then it's a triple flame and it's got the spring action on it, which is nice because this rarely comes open, you know, even if it's in my pocket. Um, 
you know, there's no way for anything to get in there and open that up while it's in my my pocket. But this is a great little lighter. I think we sell them for twenty seven ninety five. But I just I love the cylindrical aspect of it. Like it's very ergonomic, if that makes sense. Like it's very comfortable to hold. It's very comfortable to light with. And that's I'm kind of odd about that stuff too. But uh, cutters, you know, straight cutters that Calibri has. Their straight cutters are on the thinner side, kind of like the sidecar stuff. Um, but these, I mean, this thing's got some weight to it. Um, yeah, the paint and stuff kind of chips off fairly easily. I won't even really say it's paint. It's more like a, like, this is like a rubber-ish coating stuff. And then you have paint, like, on the metal part. Metal part there. That's going to scratch and chip and all that stuff. But I kind of like it when it does that because it kind of shows that it's been places. And I don't know. Just uh, personal preference. I like it. TE in the house, everyone. Ladies, ladies, ladies. Thomas Urban. Try the veal. Tip your waitress. <laughs> oh, but uh, anything exciting happen over the week? I got. Well, all right, let me rewind. So, as many of you know, I fancy myself a small gecko guy. A little bit. Nothing crazy. I'm a snake guy at heart. Hence this show, you know. Um, but I do like the geckos. And Chris Panshaw is constantly talking about how much he loves Coleonics. And I was blessed in when I took my herp trip to Tucson two years ago, I found a wild Coleonics. And I was kind of like, oh, wow, this is really cool, you know. Band of gecko, blah, blah, blah. It's cool. Play with it. Let it go. Take some pictures. And I was like, man, that species is really cool. And then Chris keeps talking about it. And he keeps talking about the Central Americans and how they're his favorite. Well, I now have 1.4 Central American banded geckos. And this is my first time with a, yeah, it's my first time with a, no, this is my second time with a South American or Central American species. So I'll say pull up. Because people may not be familiar with Coleonics. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it is Chris Painjab that actually even like sort of piqued my interest in them. Because I, I knew about them before, but I did not realize, A, how widespread they were out west. In terms of just like the number of species and stuff that we have in the States. Um, assuming you're going to pull it up. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting the photos of my animals real but, quick. Basically, I mean, these are like the U.S. leopard gecko. Yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways, when you see the pictures, it'll make sense. But uh, they're cool. Like, I don't know what it is the last year or two that I'm just I fully am, I'm really coming full circle and starting to really appreciate a lot of native species we have here that I kind of just overlooked before. Like I knew about them, but was like, yeah, that's cool. But now... You know, like knowing that these things are in our backyard, you know, it's, I have a better appreciation for them. And if I was going to do geckos again, it would be strophurus, knobtails, and probably some form of coleonics. So, so there's a, there's several different species of coleonics. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head how many. I want to say there's like 12 or maybe 13 in total, maybe, maybe more, maybe less. Don't quote me. Um, this particular species is coleonics metratus which is the Central American. Uh, my animals are actually Nicaraguan. They are wild caught, but they're not, um, 
they're not babies, but they're not adults. They're probably like in between. They might be like six to eight, six months to a year old. They're, they're fairly good sized. Um, but they're just awesome geckos during the day. They are super chill, like leopard gecko chill at night. They are spastic as hell and super fast. And thank God they can't climb glass because I would have my hands full, <laughs> but the, um, so this is, this is one of them. I just took that shot. I thought it was a good shot. I'm going to flip through some, some crappier pictures. How many, like, what did you end up with ratio-wise, do you know? Yeah, I wound up getting, uh, hold on while I do this. I'm a, I wound up getting 1.4. So, oh, and, wow. I, I, and I had the ability to be somewhat choosy in my specimens. Um, and uh, I went for the more banded animals, because that's my thing now, is banded stuff. Um, these pictures, forgive me, these pictures are really crappy. They're cell phone pictures, but... Uh, here, I'll throw these back up again. So that's one of the females. Cox said, make your bed. You're not my mom. Uh, what's funny is that picture of my bed is I wanted to make sure I knew when the speed, when the, when the specimen break was in terms of the pictures. So I would take a picture of the bed real quick and then go to the next gecko. So those are so cool, man. Super cool. And like these pictures just don't do it justice. Um, the bands are so prominent and there's different phenotypes within the region. So I don't want to say that they're like island isolations, but the majority of them, they are banded, hence the name banded geckos. But uh, the same shipment that came in from Nicaragua, um, a friend of mine, he picked through them and pulled out all like the speckled and mottled looking ones. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and focus on the banded stuff. He's going to focus on, you know, the more crazy, aberrant speckling. Um, well, let's go to the next photo. That's another female. That's not in shed. That's oh, just wow. how light that pale. animal is. Yeah. Super pale. So I kind of got a mix of everything in terms of patterning. Again, forgive the cell phone photos, but those are my four females. So, uh, I like good, how you have that really pale one, and then right next to that on the left is a really dark one. Yeah, yeah, super dark. And like, I don't, can you guys see my mouse? Yeah. Okay. So if you notice, this one has like that V on its head, mm -hmm. right? And it's still pale. This one has like this weird camo, like like a black camo in there. Mm-hmm. I like how the cream is coming up on the sides of this one and it still has the V, but it's kind of broken up. Mm -hmm. This very much looks like some of the darker, uh, poplin carpets. Yeah. Which I like a lot. And then this one's head, this probably has the most pink. I mean, the, the deli cup doesn't do it justice, but this probably has the most pink on its head, but you can see that it's just a total, you know, Vorschach test of mm -hmm. nothing, just blotches and spatterings, you know? Well, then in the, you know, the brown in the bands and those is more prominent too. In yeah. That one. And then I have a one picture of the male. Here's the male. And he's a little dusty because um, the container he was in was kind of dusty, but I thought he was, he's the perfect stud because he has good bands. He still has some, you know, some weird, you know, blushing on the sides and stuff. And then he has that weird, crazy head pattern. I love the like the way that those and the leopards have that sort of bluish hue between the, the, the eyes. Eye, the eyeshadow. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's like these guys go for always Mac. about those, right? Right. But and they're they're super soft, very very small scaled, very reminiscent of lysis and and like white lips and stuff like that. Very very soft and. According to Chris, they the the Mitradas, they do this weird scorpion tail defense thing where they like make their tail fully erect and like kind of curve it up in the air like a scorpion. And I won't lie, I, I, I kind of was poking at the male trying to get him to do it, and he's just the most chill gecko ever. He just doesn't care. So <laughs> it's it honestly it feels like he's captive bred because he's just so yeah, I'm cool, I'm chilling. Even at even at night, he just doesn't care. So I'm very, very excited to do these species. Very excited. So that's my my highlight for the week. Yeah, they're just like I said, man, talking to Chris about them. Of course, you talk to Chris about anything. He's just he's so freaking amped about it that it's it's hard not yeah. to it's contagious, you know, it's hard not to to get excited about it too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Fishhead Diagnostics now has fecal exam kits, just so everyone knows. Nice. And what is the fecal exam kit going to be? <clears throat> uh, so this is a post that Pia literally just tagged us in. Uh, she said, just like our nidovirus kits, they include all supplies needed to collect a fecal at home. We use a preservative to stabilize the feces for shipment to the lab. We are proud to have partnered with an amazing lab that has held to our high standards for a limited time. Get a discounted... <laughs> get a discounted shipment rate <laughs> a shipment rate yep I love it uh, so I'll repost that um, that's nifty you know that's something like when it comes to that I mean yeah you can have your local vet do it and they, they can probably identify what's going on or likely will but when you have it more focused towards herps and stuff that i think that's so even if it ends up costing a little more like that's probably worth the extra coin sure sure because you know if p and dr susan vouch for that lab then you know it's legit absolutely absolutely and you know fecal is so much better it's so much let me phrase it fecal is so much easier than doing mouth swabs you know because I just didn't find the mouth swab to be difficult. It's just it's hard when you when it's just you. Yeah, you have another set of hands. That's right. it, it's one thing, but yeah, right, right. So we had a topic that we want to talk about tonight, right? Do we want to get into the like the the book thing that I was talking about first, since I mean, that's kind it, of it, shorter? It's up to you. I mean, it doesn't matter. Shorter, longer. I mean, we're here. You know, let's rock and roll. So I finished as of today. I finally finished that uh, venomous bites from non-venomous snakes uh, that talks about management of uh, colubrid bites. That uh, I'm sure you guys have seen me post about it. Let me find it. It has like four authors. So it's a great book. Easily one of the best hurt books I've read. Granted, that is not a large pool, but man, there's so much good information. Uh, so venomous bites from non-venomous snakes, a critical analysis of risk and management of colubrid snake bites. Um, 
great book if you have any interest in that kind of stuff be it uh you know boiga heterodon any of the weird stuff thrasops uh it talks about it a lot phylogrys has talked about it a lot um and it's interesting because the last bit talks about the issue with bite reports posted online okay um and it's, it actually it talked about it in in terms that I I really hadn't considered, and so we've all seen the posts in groups uh, or Reddit or forums where people talk about you know they got bit by their tricolor hog, their uh, melanota, whatever. And the book talks about how like that's fine and all, but those cannot be medically accepted reports clinically. Uh, and they talk about why. And so basically what they were getting at is like, yeah, read these, but take them with a grain of salt. And so the reason that you would be doing that is because uh, one of the major points was people like to conflate stories a little bit. Okay. It's, it's not objective. Um, so, you know, you have the guy that talks about getting bit by the, you know, the, the four foot melanota or whatever and yeah they may not be trying to church it up a little bit but you also don't know that um the other main point was you don't know the medical history of that person like they may have some comorbidities or something that even they may not know about so that may have played a factor in why a bite that's normally not that serious was a little more severe um you know they talked about just not having background information um you know, the identity of the snake and it being 100% verified. Uh, right, right. You know. And that's a they, big deal. Did they seek medical treatment? Did they not? What drugs did they take? You know, antihistamines or whatever. Uh, you know, so it was really interesting to think about that. Like, I always enjoy reading bite reports, um, sting reports. Like, if you, uh, what's that? There's that Venom Forum. I don't remember what it is. I don't remember what it's called. I've been on it forever. But they had a section for, for bite reports and sting reports uh, catered to tarantulas and scorpions. <clears throat> and so I always enjoyed reading that. But it's and like it was each, just arthropoda? Uh, there was like a snake section, but no one really posted on there. If I but like they didn't, they didn't cover, you know, marine stuff. They didn't cover insects. Right. Okay. Uh, and then Matt asked, does the book say anything about a connection between snake bites and other allergies like bee stings? Uh, I don't remember it saying anything specifically about that. Uh, and that's and that's interesting. By the way, uh, what's up, Scott? Um, there's always been a correlation. And, and I don't know if this is just like the pet shop guy in my mind or not. But there's always been a correlation between, oh, are you allergic to bees? Because usually a, some kind of bee is on the panel for allergen tests, right? If you're allergic to bees, don't have a pet scorpion. Like if you're allergic to bees, don't have a pet emperor scorpion, which I can see the logic, but I wonder if there's it's any kind of apples to, to oranges. Cause you're talking yeah, about it's like, completely different. Bee, like bees, it's an, it's an apitoxin, right? Like it's specific to bees, whatever yeah. scorpion you get stung by, be it heterometris or uh, centroroides or whatever, like that's going to be very different from a bee or a wasp or whatever, you know? It did not specifically talk about that, but it does talk about um, mismanagement, like clinically 
people that had got bit by phylogryas that were given Bothrops serum. Wow. Um, there was talk of sort of experimental things where people were trying blood transfusions and adding uh, plasma with some bites. Um, and it's funny because they also just they also explained the term like mildly venomous and considering something venomous is also not nearly as cut and dry as the whole rear fang thing to begin with. Okay. So they talk about how the, the definition of venomous kind of varies a lot because yeah, you can have a rattlesnake, you know, which has a very serious toxin and we know that. And then you can have a brown tree snake, you know, an irregularis and those have reports of, some decent neurotoxic effects, mostly right. in infants and small children. But when it comes to stuff like that, it's not necessarily like you can't really compare the two in a sense because the venom for the for the boiga is completely prey specific. Right. Like it's meant. I mean, they. Like, I think Fry put out the numbers that that boiga toxin when it came to lizards. Uh, was like 3,000 times more toxic to lizards than to, to us and, I guess, other mammals. Um, yeah, yeah. So to say that, and I guess it kind of goes against what we con constantly preach, um, you know, with, with rear fang stuff. I'm still not going to take the risk of getting bit by any of my cyania. Um, but basically saying, like, yeah, they're venomous but it's not venomous in the traditional sense of it's used for protection. It's meant for food procurement. Right. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, they said, you know, I told you, I think last week how they classified different snakes by hazard level, uh, right. hazard level one through four. And uh, they basically said, the rear fang snakes that you are like that are up there with the big boys in terms of toxicity and likelihood of, of mortality right. were your boom slangs, your twig snakes. Um, and then the, the rhabdophis, it talked yeah. about rhabdophis toxins a lot, like a ton of people got bit by tigerness, um, which I thought was really interesting. Cause that's, that's not one of the heavy hitters. So right. Yeah. Uh, and it makes me wonder the places where that would be located. I mean, is it a misidentification of the species itself, not even being Rhabdophis? Yeah. And there was actually a specific section on that because there are in that same range of Rhabdophis, there are a few species that look very, very similar. Right. Uh, and interestingly enough, these things are in the, like the nature scene family. So similar to like your garter snakes, uh, right. Nerodia, I believe, or would still be in that that group. Um, but these things are legitimately toxic. Like these things cause some yeah. really interesting stuff. Uh, the book also talked about the use of uh, stuff like heparin, uh, the use of other drugs, and um, how they act with you know whether or not they're actually effective or not, or if they're actually just making the problem worse. Uh, Right. Talked about like acute kidney uh, damage, uh, long-term effects. You know, where did there were some people that got bit, and it it did so much damage to their kidneys that they eventually, you know, even after the bite, after a prolonged period, didn't survive just 
because the damage had been done to their kidneys right. so much right. that they just could not come back. Yeah, renal failure <laughs> is a major thing with a lot of that cytotoxin. You know, mm -hmm. you may not you may not have that bad of an adverse reaction from the cytotoxins itself, but your kidneys are doing their job to suck that crap out, whether it be, you know, in excess levels of hemoglobin because of destruction or just it trying to, you know, be the filter that they are and it just overloads. And I mean, you've scrolled through four or five pictures just in that one little clip you just scrolled mm -hmm. and three or four of the animals I saw in that five seconds could have been easily mistaken as bungerous, you know? Yeah, well, so, there's there's like an Asian garter family where right. there's a handful of them that look very, very, very similar to a lot of these to where even if I saw them, I would probably, I wouldn't touch any of them because it's, you know, some of and, them are and, really and, hard to identify and separate. And when you say garter, you're meaning more like Natrix or are you meaning more like Elapsoida? Um, more like Thamnophis. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Because, I mean, they have the same scalation, same general sort of garter-ishness, um, which it doesn't really surprise me that they'd be sort of in that that family. I mean, that's a much broader separation. Obviously, the garter snakes we have here in the States are going to be completely different from garter snakes everywhere else, but of they course. are still going to be kind of related. Yeah. Um, and so they talked about how, like, this is Subminiatus, so this is another species um, that also has caused some, some serious bites, not nearly as serious as the tigerness, but um, they were talking about how the antivenom for tigerness has been effective for these. Uh, they talked about how no one's really like antivenom for any of the rhabdophis is very hard to find because not a whole lot of people are doing anything with it. Um, and bites are, are basically they, they said the, the profit margins weren't high enough for companies to justify making antivenom for these things. Right. Similar to is, Eastern coral snake. Right. <clears throat> So uh, I thought that was kind of funny because it's like, of course, you know, it's. And did the book talk about poisoning at all or no? Uh, no, no. So okay. Phil, when Phil talks about that, uh, I, I don't know if it's the subminiatus, if it's all rhabdophis. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's almost all, if not all rhabdophis. There was actually just a picture of that. So these guys are the one, like the snakes that are technically poisonous and venomous. Let me see. There was a really good picture of it a second ago. And uh, while you look for that, uh, you know, our, our resident Aussie, Scott Iper, has been giving us some wonderful information. Um, going back to the, you know, arthropoda, uh, talking about histamine responses not linked in arthropod venomations, which I find incredibly fascinating. Um, and, uh, you know, he, just trying to remember, uh, saying that species like Boiga have the three-finger toxin, um, which is very prey specific, but squamata, not to rodenta. So like going back to what Justin was saying, the venom is, is catered to a more reptilian prey and therefore would have a more adverse reaction to reptilian prey opposed to biting a mammal. Which they also mentioned, you know, that's not to say that if you did get bit by a large boiga, uh, you right. know, a big big melanota, big irregularis, like there that would be a legitimate. There's a possibility for that to be a much more serious uh, case medically. Um, so this is a good picture. This shows the the poison glands uh, that rhabdophis have in the neck, like literally directly behind the head. Um, 
and that's I believe that's similar to sort of how dart frogs uh, get their toxin. These guys are are big amphibian eaters, from what I what I understand, if I'm if I'm correct. Yeah, and so they've adopted that, and it's it's a poisonous and a venomous snake. So I think that was interesting. And just for anyone who's curious, you know, we keep saying Rhabdophus. Um, it's typically referred to as killbacks. So most of the species that we, we're talking about, the common name is blah, 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 killback. You know, whether it be rainbow killback or the blue-naped killback, which is probably my favorite, that's uh, Rhabdophus uh, rhodomelis. Um, I'm actually trying to Oh, yeah, those a, things are cool. I'll find a picture right of them. You, you looking? Yeah. Okay. So there These you go. things are... Yeah, those things are super duper awesome. Uh, I've actually been asking some people around for them because that, of all the Rhabdophis, that would probably be my top hitter. And apparently, yeah, I'm not alone, and they're quite rare in the in the pet world. I think it's the there's one that's like all green with black. I think that's the maybe there's one that's really cool looking. It ain't this one though. I mean, this one is cool looking, but the other one was was neater. It almost looks it like, a, it's like, uh, like Asian night adder. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, like, yeah. It's really, really strange. So, Scott's saying that there was a serious. Man, Scott's saying there's a serious case in Guam where a very large, quote unquote, irregularis, almost killed a young child. Uh, there have been a few anaphylactic responses there in Australia as well. So despite yeah. it being relatively mild in humans, the anaphylaxis kicked some ass. Yeah, and that the book talked about with irregular like it talked about irregularis specifically multiple times and it talks about how irregularis in their range they see more severe effects with small children than they do healthy adults. Um but they also found, and this is if I completely read it correctly, because I've, I've talked about it before, how it's a pretty technical book. It's kind of a drier book. There's a lot of medical terminology and stuff. But it talked about how irregularis venom, when they're young, is much more neurotoxic. And then as they get older, with the ontogenetic shift in, in sort of like habitat and diet, I would assume, um, that it actually loses some of that neurotoxicity. And it... it guess I becomes more specific to, to larger prey. Uh, so they talked about that being kind of an issue where smaller snakes would, would somehow small children would either get a hold of them or get bit while they're sleeping. And the higher neurotoxicity would cause more issues. So I thought that was interesting. That's very interesting. I know a lot of people get curious where, you know, we speak about small children. That could be anything from a newborn infant to say, you know, eight years old, maybe even 10 years old. Um, but people wonder, well, like, do these snakes sneak into the house and go in the baby's crib? And it's like, no, that's that's not what we're usually talking about. It's, the odds of that happening are very, very slim. Um, it's usually a child that's of walking age and happens to wander off from mom for two seconds and sees a snake and picks it up and flap that's how he gets he or she gets tagged um so <laughs> the odds of, of irregularis sneaking into your bedroom at night and, and coiling up with your newborn are, are, are quite slim in often cases unless you're on guam yeah unless you're in guam <laughs> 
so I don't know. It was a great read. Uh, it's just there was a ton of information. It talks about sort of the difference uh, between you know rear fang colubrids and your sort of your standard front fang venomous, be it elapids or crotalids or anything like that. So basically, those are considered sort of a high pressure delivery. And then with the rear fang stuff, that's considered sort of a low pressure uh, delivery. So they, you know, front fang stuff obviously has the hypodermic needle effect with the fangs. Uh, with the rear fang stuff, I kind of consider it the, the way I sort of interpreted it and understand it. And once again, I Scott can correct me uh, is I look at rear fang stuff as like a sponge with uh what the hell are those things called from that are in the caves that hang from the ceiling? The stalactites. Yeah. You're muted. So yes, <laughs> think of it like that. So you have like, basically the, the point is, is that they bite, uh, chew sometimes, sometimes they don't. The book talks about how that is not necessarily necessary to have envenomation happen, but basically it's a lower pressure. system. so that gland, uh, you know, it, it gets squeezed and then that venom just sort of drips, like runs down that tooth. Uh, most have some sort of a canal in the dentition to a assist groove, that. You will. Yeah, but it's not the high pressure system that you have with, with rattlesnakes and elapids and stuff where, you know, it's a forceful sort of jet through the, through the fang into the, you know, the vein or the skin. Uh, so it was really interesting just to hear how, how it all works. It's, it's a great Which, book. I highly recommend it. I actually, I, I should know this. I don't know why I don't. Maybe I'm just having a brain fart. But, for example, Actractaspis, where does that fall into play? Those were considered front fang. Okay, so they were still considered high pressure. Yes. So they had okay. those They had those lump, lumped in with elapids uh, and crotalids. Okay. Okay. It's an awesome book. I highly recommend yeah. it. If you can get your hands on a copy, definitely do. Uh, is it still in print? I don't believe it is. And do you know what the publication date is of yours? This is 2011, I think. Okay. It's not It's not an old book. It's not a new book. Everything in it should be very much still relevant uh, and, and accurate. But Yeah. But yeah, I mean, bite reports are fun to read, but take them with a grain of salt. Um because there's just a lot of factors where you don't have the objectivity that you do with clinical reports. Yeah. And I actually learned a lot of, a lot of medical terminology too. Cause like, as I'm reading it, I'm like, I've never heard of that. So I'm Googling as I'm reading and learning things and, you know, talks about, uh, like I said, the transfusion of blood and like, what do you do when you have, you know, no coagulation happening in the blood, like with your telotornus and, and just follow this stuff. And right. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, Scott yeah. said the capillary attraction with limited muscular constriction into a wound. That's, that's accurate. Evolution in progress. I hear it's being revised currently. So, but I also talked about, I think an episode or so or two ago about how that term rear fanged is just so vague because the dentition across all these different groups is varies so wildly uh, just from the size of those rear fangs to the, the groove 
Like some of the some of those groups don't even have a groove. Right. Uh, some have a groove that goes almost the length of the tooth. Um, they talk about garter snakes. So Matt asked, "What category does American garter snakes fall into?" Um, so that was one of the ones where they were kind of like. To say they're venomous is a bit of a stretch. Uh, and it's one of those things where so many people don't have reactions to those bites that every now and then you get the one person that posts on Facebook, the you know, ridiculous amount of swelling. Um, and so they basically said to say that they are venomous in the traditional sense is kind of a stretch. Similar to what I was talking about with, with some of the other stuff where they're specialized feeders. Um, and so that system is catered to that prey. It's prey specific. Uh, they basically, they, they, yeah. Daniel says phyla dries have some pretty decent sized rear fangs, which yeah. Phyla dries are talked a lot. Um, Baroni isn't really talked about much. It's mostly the other species of phyla dries that we really don't see in the hobby a whole lot. Uh, but in Brazil, there is a species that bites people. There, there've been a pretty good amount of documented bites and, some of them were serious, not necessarily life-threatening, but uh, and it's Phyllodryas ulfersi. Um, so there was like there's been a rumor about this species and someone dying from a bite. They talked about that in particular, and they said they don't have any actual evidence that the person actually died from that bite. It could have been something completely different, like some sort of comorbidity or something. Um, so they said, yeah, they're venomous. Yeah, they can they can do some damage. But to say that they've killed someone, no one can say for sure because they don't know what the actual cause of death was and how like how long after the bite did that actually happen. So that one was kind of up in the air. But they're pretty innocuous looking. That one's big. <clears throat> yeah, I was just going through... Uh... Actrectaspis micro rabbit hole and just looking at I went looking for fang related stuff and I stumbled across taxonomy issues which is the bane of my existence talking about how you know you can't just consider colubridae or colubridae a wastebasket taxon anymore <laughs> and now they're bra breaking everything down so like Actrectaspis is technically not even colubrid anymore so which is probably for the better, but whatever. I digress. But it gave, uh, so the, like the very last maybe 10 pages or so, it gave some specific examples of some of these online bite reports and then gave their comments as to why, like where the, where the gray areas are, where the questionable areas are. You know, it talked about a Western hognose bite, talked about a big melanota bite. Um, and so it, it, was like here's what happened but here's where the holes are and here's why we didn't include this in the book like on a on the serious level of talking about cases because there are a lot of case reports in there which i thought was interesting because i love reading that stuff um but they talked about like that heterodon bite and that that melanota bite and they you know they were going off some of the text in those posts and like just a lot of gray areas like we don't know if this person has like alcoholism drug addiction diabetes uh heart disease, like things that, that would make a difference in the outcome of, of whatever happened. And, you know, that would gauge the severity of those bites. Um, so it was, it's awesome to see them sort of, they, they talk about it, like they show you the case report and then they give their comments and sort of their breakdown of, of why this 
might be questionable. I like it. I got to get my hands on it, man. And I got to find one. Thomas asked, uh, now how could we as a hobby better classify the nitty-gritty of the different flavors of rear fang venomous? Uh, does the system already exist in the scientific community? And Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, I'm always going to be of the opinion, if it's rear fanged, probably don't want to get bit by it. And yeah, that, that book has sort of... Uh, Oh, well, if we're talking about in terms of like taxonomy classification, yes. So pistoglyphs are, are what they would be called. But um, like Scott was saying, we just need Scott in here all the time. Well, I, our, shows, mine. our shows get more and more venomous by the week, which I, I love. But, you know, <laughs> that that's why. <laughs> God bless you. I think what Thomas is saying, like in the hobby, as far as like severity. Right. Right. You know, and. That was one of the one of the sections in the book. They put like they had a little sort of op-ed piece towards the back that said opistoglyphs in, in the private sector, you know, and basically the authors were like, we're all for people keeping venomous. But with species like Teletornis, where there is no antivenom, right. those should be left to like private facilities like zoos and stuff, um, you know, just because of the, the level of risk. Uh but at the same time, that's not a group that we see kept in captivity really right. all that often. It's pretty rare. Um, boom slangs, you know, they have an antivenin. Um, what else? There was actually, so they talked about the use, like what we've kind of already known about bites of getting antivenom early, even if it's only an ampule or two, right. uh, makes a huge difference. Um, you know, things that can change the outcome of some of these, because when we're talking about serious stuff, like the, you know, the twig snakes and boom slangs, like you're basically doing a ton of damage control for a lot of, uh, like zero coagulation of the blood, you know, it gets, it thins out platelet counts drop and, and, and whatnot. And they actually go into detail about the platelet count thing. And, uh, it's just, I could go on about it all night and I'm having a terrible time explaining it. It makes complete sense in my head, but, no, you're, you're, you're doing an all right job. Yeah. You're, you're doing an all right job. Highly it, recommend it. I'm sure you can find it on eBay. Yeah, it's it's an awesome book, and it's it's difficult because when we talk about epistoglyphs, like, we know what we're talking about, but a lot of people don't. And just to summarize for those trying to catch up, right, and I, I, I'm not trying to talk down to anyone. I'm just trying to do, like, a micro layman's recap. You've got a lot of snakes that have the ability to produce a venom, whether it be in minute quantities or in large quantities. Um, and there are some of those snakes that their delivery system is crappy, for lack of a better word, and therefore does not give adverse reactions when humans are envenomated. And then you have other ones where it's, it's really nasty and it will mess you up real quick and you will die. Um, so when we talk about epistoglyphs, we're talking about those animals where the old terminology was rear fang. Obviously, we've learned a lot, and it's not just a fang in the rear. They don't have to just chew on you, and so on and so forth. And that's what that's the synopsis of what we're discussing. Like I said, it is not a light read, um, but 
Damn it, man! I don't know that there's a there's a book herp wise that I've read that had that I I was more fascinated by and was just glued to uh, than this one. I mean, it was just so much information that talked uh, talked about like the psi of of bites, like the the pressure really? of yeah that venom and how it's coming out. And I want to say the book said the average was about thirty psi with crotalid bites. Interesting. I'll have to look that up. Interesting. I actually, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because most of the elapids, I'm pretty sure, are also, because I mean, I don't know a lot about it, but I know most of the elapids are at about 30, I think it's like 28 to 36 PSI. And it's funny because most of the stuff in the animal world that is shot or spat is around that same speed. Really? Yeah, and it has to do with muscle oh. contraction. So, well, then Matt says, if my brother gets bit by a horsefly, his whole hand will swell up like crazy. But I don't think anybody who classify a horsefly as venomous. And yeah, you're not wrong. But that's also that sort of falls in that same category as like prey specific, because there is some sort of uh, I saw a video yesterday actually about mosquitoes and how those work. I thought it was pretty interesting. But they have like a like they, they anesthetize that region before they bite into it. And then I believe they have something that's like a weak anticoagulant to help get right. that blood out of the, you know, out of that, that capillary. Right. And that's not, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even consider that a venom because you're not even, you're not talking about, well, I mean, I guess you could in terms of like digestive enzymes and so on and so forth. You know, I guess maybe who knows way above our pay grade. Yeah. And that's that's just what the whole book was kind of saying is like venomous in terms of this group of animals is kind of a vague term because obviously you have extremes where you have boom slings and then you have things like uh, garter snakes, you know, explaining how like, yeah, you can say they are, but medically and clinically, we don't really consider them that because if it's like mild local effects, there's you kind of get that from any bite from, you know, a large Python, you know, you're going to get some swelling, you're going to get some redness, you might itch, uh, you know, so it talks about that a lot, but it also interestingly talks about tetanus. Uh, Cause I think some people are under the impression that you can't get tetanus from snake bite, but it has actually been recorded that you can, it's just very rare. It's not common. That's all those snakes that lick rusty metal before they bite you. <laughs> yes. Well, I was unaware. It's actually, it's a bacteria. And that bacteria has a, uh, what they described as basically a toxin, like a, a neurotoxic sort of property that causes your muscles to spasm out. And that's why you get lockjaw because those toxins like lock up those muscles. Very interesting. I don't know. This is like the, the, the rear fang venomous book for dummies version, what I'm telling you. So, You'll just have to get the book and read yourself to for yeah. it all to make sense. It's awesome. I, I can't explain it. <laughs> yeah, man. I think it's super interesting. Super duper interesting. Yeah, I love that stuff, man. Like case reports, I could read those all day. I find that stuff fascinating. Oh yeah. And you've you've read the uh that classic one on the boom sling with from the from the BHD, right? Yeah. Yeah. And dude, like you feel his pain of having to describe everything, but at the same time you have to commend him and respect him because he kept it scientific to a T, you know, and he noted everything, everything yeah. sad, but breathtaking. 
Oh, I, I almost positive they didn't have Boom Sling any venom at that point, so he was kind of screwed regardless. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure he was one of the only Westerners he was, to he was the first one to document it because I think before yeah. they completely they thought like just like with Teletornis, they thought they were harmless. They were like, yeah, these things are no big deal. And then someone got bit and bled out of every hole in their body. And they're like, wait a second. Which is crazy because, you know, if you and I went into the bush and just started playing with boom slangs, you know, we'd get messed up. You know, how many other people did it in the past and nothing happened. <laughs> and I think I may have mentioned it an episode or two ago, but it talks about boom slangs in particular as well. And how bites with those are interesting because they can open their mouths considerably wider than a lot of snakes. I want to say it was like 170 degrees. Yeah. And so bites and envenomations are, are a little easier from them just because they, they have such a, a wide wide gate. Yeah. So and, if, and, and like I've I've you know, getting a lot of import boom slangs back in the day, we we'd throw a live hopper in there and see if that worked. And if it worked, it was it was it was quick and easy transition to frozen thought, you know? And you kind of feel bad because you watch that mouth open so wide and just whap. And then you see the effects and it's so rapid. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's legit scary, but amazing at the same time. You know, Awesome species. Yeah. Um, you know, they talked about the difference in some of these toxins, like the prey specific ones, uh, you know, the ones that are catered for lizards and injecting them into, into mice and, seeing how it doesn't have much of an effect on on mammals but you put it in a you know a gecko or something and those things are dead and almost instantly so it's just it's very interesting so grab it uh there was a really cool one of those the bite reports that they didn't include in the official ones but ones they sort of commented on and talked about was actually from a thras ops uh apparently someone got bit by like a 14 inch which is considered a small one i guess um, maybe it wasn't even 14. It might've even been smaller than that, but the bite was, was significant. And the person basically commented, you know, if this was a larger individual, I probably would have gone to the hospital. So and you said that was, that was Thrasops. Yeah. Jackson. I, yeah. Yeah. Again, awesome species and mm -hmm. way, way misunderstood in a lot of ways. But you know what I've been doing lately? Switching gears. Yeah. I usually go to my parents' house on Sunday to hang out with them and whatnot and let them hang out with the grandkids. Uh, yeah. And there's some tin and stuff back behind their house. Uh, behind there is. Chicken coop that my dad used to have chickens in that has been vacant for some time now. And so now every Sunday or Monday mornings when I'm over there cleaning out my mice, uh, topping everybody off on food and whatnot. There's a couple of boards. There's some tin. I go and flip those now, and it's. I finally found some stuff actually, which before the reason I never really went herping out at where my parents live, and they have you know they're they're surrounded by woods. It's a very rural sort of part of the, the county, and so you would think there would be snakes everywhere. But in the past, when I went as a kid, I very rarely found anything, and so after a while, I kind of just stopped herping. Uh, but within the last couple of weeks, I've found a couple of black racers, which those are stupid common. So those weren't too much of a surprise, but did find a copperhead, which is cool. I found another crown snake, which I thought was awesome. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so it's kind of like giving me a, a, a little 
motivation to kind of get out there more and do some looking around and even just walking around the woods, you know, I've missed it a lot. And it's one of the things that we were going to talk about last week, but didn't get to, cause we were so involved with books. Um, it was just like how, how good that kind of stuff can be just for even just mental health. Even if you don't find anything, you know, you're out in the woods, oh, yeah. you're not on Facebook, you're not on the internet, you're outdoors in nature. Just breathing it in. Breathing it in. Yeah. I, uh, I make a, a, a mission of it. If, if, if I had unlimited gas and unlimited mileage on my car, I would go herping every day. Yes. And uh, you need to go hurt the Francis Mary and Thomas. That would be awesome. And I try to make it a a mission to at least at a minimum go road cruising in the middle of nowhere at least twice a month. Because if I don't, I know I'm just going to, I'm not going to feel right. You know, I, I, we live in such bustling lives and, you know, some of the people listening to this may live in a more rural environment. Some in a more urban environment and, it really doesn't matter because even if you live in the most rural of areas, you're not always off just chilling, looking for herbs. You know, it's you're working on whether it be agricultural or livestock or any kind of blue collar career, whatever it may be. It's good to just get out of the norm and experience nature. You know, that's why we love what we love. It's a nice little walkabout, you know. Legit. And, uh, but it's got me itching to go out more, you know, when I'm actually yeah. finding stuff. And maybe that's why historically for me, I've never been big on actually like seriously herping. And it's like I said, mostly because I never really found anything. But then I have people who are like, they live for it. And every day they're off, they're out in the, you know, and out somewhere looking for stuff. Yeah. And they find stuff. Like I see people on Instagram all the time. You know, they're out in Texas, they're somewhere up the coast for me, like in the Charleston area. And, you know, they're posting the pictures of the 10 snakes they found within two hours of being in, you know, a random field somewhere. And it's corns and copperheads and king snakes and Nerodia. And it's like, man, like now I get why I get the appeal and I understand why it's so popular. But for me, I just I never really find anything. And so I, especially when it's hot during the summer. Yeah. Kind of miserable to go out there when it's stupid hot and you got gnats in your eyes and. So I've never, I've never been big on it, but I'm, I'm itching more to go road cruise with Bratz and his secret spot now, just because I'm <laughs> finding some stuff. So that's good, man. And like, I've also, I find that the, the research, the, the pregame, if you will, of herping, whether it be talking to friends, mutual acquaintances, learning the spots, looking at the topography of the land that you're, you know, checking out that's kind of cool in itself too, you know, and there's actually, there's several uh, apps that they're not just topographical apps. They're not just a map app. You're not going to find, you know, good herping spots on ways per se, you know, but like, for example, there's a a map app that's for hunters called on X, um, like on, you know, X, the letter X, and uh, it's a paid app. You have to pay an annual fee, but what it does is it actually shows you, property boundaries and easements and it also shows you easement access so let's say there's a parcel of land that's owned by the state but the access to it is behind the, the, the easy access to it is behind a uh, agricultural property 
<clears throat> excuse me. Well, if you don't have a means to talk to the farmer to get access to his property to, to access the other one, <laughs> this map will show you different ways to go about it. Urban says Which, super useful for not getting shot at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's very true. But I mean, and like I said, it's it's designed for hunters to know where state land is, management land is, um, federal land is. But it also tells you if you click the parcel of land, like let's say there's a bunch of woods, right? And it's right there. And you don't want to be that guy or gal trespassing. If you click the section, it'll tell you who's on that, who owns that property. And you can contact them. And I've done that copious amounts of times where I'll call up the company and it's some holding company that just happened to buy a parcel of land that's, you know, 10 acres. And I'll say, hey, you know, I'm, I wanted to go on this property and do some wildlife photography. You know, do I have, can I get permission? Do you need me to sign a waiver or something? They're like, no, man, there's nothing there. Have fun. Don't break your leg. You know, other times they may not be so accommodating, but at least yeah. there are ways to go about it. Don't feel trapped because you're stuck only going to that one boardwalk on the side mm -hmm. of a community. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that's, that's another thing that's kind of deterred me from it, I guess a little more is because when I was a kid, so the, there's a house like a lot over from my parents' place. And it used to be owned by this guy that had, he has, well, he still does. He just doesn't live there anymore, but it's one of the biggest landscaping companies in the County. And it was a massive, massive, plot that he had like it had his house and stuff on it but he also had like barns where they would hold like equipment and whatnot and so i remember as a kid i'd go and ask him you know hey can i look around for snakes and he always said no and i can almost guarantee you is from the liability standpoint of i have a ton of money and if this kid gets hurt i'm gonna be shelling out a lot of that sure uh, sure but yeah i mean it's the like that's the other thing is like seeing that you know the, the trespassing no trespassing signs not knowing who to who to contact uh you know, that's always deterred me because I don't want to be that guy, especially right. if it's on if someone actually lives on that property and you don't know it because you can't see their house through the, you know, through the, the trees or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't want to get shot at. You've talked about that with the chameleons and the Salcata stuff, that situation, you know, oh, yeah. down someone, south. That's a very real got. possibility. Yeah. So, you know, and then, but, like, for example, I had a teacher in high school where. Thank he, you, Matt. Yeah. Have a good night, Matt. Um. I had a teacher in high school that loved doing wildlife photography in Florida. He was born and raised in Florida. And he remembers before my, when I was in high school, he remembers when before my high school was there and it was the end of civilization. And they slowly just bulldozed more and more and more and more and more to make room for humans. And he tells, he would tell stories of crazy animals that he found uh, aberrant scarlet snakes and stuff that you just don't see anymore because we've taken so much land. But, um, one of the things, one of the stories he tells is how he uh, he was driving down the road and saw a dirt road with no signs, no cattle fences, no nothing, but there was a nice strip of orange trees. And in Florida, we're known for our oranges, as most of you well know. And a lot of times, through bird germation and irrigation and just you know, orange trees sprout up all over the place so he assumed this was probably some vacant cattle lot and a bunch of trees just happened to pop up so he says you know what i'm gonna walk over there from my car <clears throat> excuse me and i'm gonna just take some pictures of the orange blossoms because they're gorgeous and he said he was in that field for about 15 20 minutes before five guys on atvs with rifles drove up on him held him at gunpoint and said who do you work for why are you here and they worked 
for one of the major orange juice production companies that shall remain nameless. Uh, and they thought that he was there to sabotage their crops. So like when Thomas says that Onyx is awesome, it's super useful for not getting shot at. In a lot of cases, he's very correct. <laughs> what does it cost a year? Like what's the annual fee? Oh, I don't remember. I actually, I got to renew mine. I haven't used it in a couple months, but uh, I think Thomas, it wasn't much. No, Thomas. Yeah, Thomas, Thomas. It wasn't much. It was like thirty bucks for the year. That's not bad. Yeah, which is, I, I'm pretty sure it was like if you just want the map app, it was like six ninety nine or something. But if you wanted it with all like the parcel names and the phone numbers and you know all that, it was like thirty thirty five dollars something like that. Yeah, Thomas concurs about thirty bucks. So, but again, we, you don't have to have a fancy app and start, you know, hopping fence lines, so to speak. There's a lot of public land. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that um, part of the Parks and Recs Act, back when Roosevelt was president, or excuse me, when Theodore Roosevelt was president, um, there's a couple of those Roosevelts, you know, um, it was making sure that every person that lived in the United States had access to the wonderful wilderness that is our country. And that's where you have sportsman's tax, so on and so forth. So every single one of you guys watching and listening technically owns a piece of U.S. land. You just need to learn how you can access it, whether it be buying a hunting license and a management stamp through your state or you know, buying a management access tag for the weekend or the day, or even if it's just you want to use that recreational campsite. Uh, for a lot of places, have recreational campsites where the license is free. You just have to apply for it so that it's fair to everyone else, and you don't get squatters and stuff like that. But we all own public land, and uh, you'll you'll see a lot of hunters. They wear shirts that says "public landowner." Well, it's true because we all own a piece of it, and we have the ability and the right to to use it, you know? So take the time to look where your public access is, look where your public land is and see, you know, is bird watching allowed, is kayaking allowed, is fishing allowed and go about it the right way. And if it means you have to take a hunter safety course, if that means you have to get a hunting license, whether you want to shoot Bambi or not, at least go through those steps. So they're usually become, not that expensive either. Yeah, I think for Florida, it's $26 for the year. And I get access to, I think over 500 parcels of land. And when I mean parcel of land, I'm not talking about like five acres here, 10 acres there. Uh, I think Three Lakes WMA is like 56,000 acres. God. Now, granted, I can't remove any reptiles from the land because it is state property. Mm -hmm. But I can take photos. I can I can pick stuff up Let's and hold enjoy it. it. Yeah. Enjoy it, right. So think outside the box a little bit. Do a little homework and and don't feel subjected to just walking down the block and finding a bunch of bushes and seeing if there's a carter snake in it yeah it's just like i said for me it's i don't have that spot where i know if i go there i'm gonna at least see something you know even if it's something as simple as a crown snake or you know uh, steraria i don't have that spot where i know for sure like I'm, I'm there's a very good chance i'm gonna come across something like jake has his secret spot where he goes out road cruising which is a very good spot the one time we went i think we just saw a red bellied water. Um, I think that was it, but you know, everyone's got like their spot that they like to go to and I don't have a spot and it sucks and it doesn't make sense because my parents live out in what's kind of the middle of nowhere. You've been there. You've seen it. There should be snakes everywhere out there. 
Yeah. And I very yeah. rarely find any. I see there's a lot of yellow rats. And of course, there's a lot of black racers. And I think the black racers might have a pretty heavy hand in why there aren't a lot of other snakes there because the black racers are probably eating everything in existence. Right. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, those are cool too. But after you see them constantly, you kind of get a little jaded to them and you're kind of like, yeah, another black racer. Cool. Uh, water quality. That's a good question. I don't, I don't, there's a couple of swampy areas back there. That's another thing I've never seen it. There's turtles and frogs everywhere, but I've never really seen any serious numbers of Nerodia. I found more Nerodia in their pool skimmer box than I found out around those little water, uh, like swamps. Yeah. It also comes down to time of day and what species you're going to encounter. You know, so like, uh, I know that if I want to see cottonmouths, my best chance to see that is about 30 minutes before the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. Um, water snakes, I would say, you know, Nerodia species, I would say would be about 30 to 45 minutes after the sun goes down. Um, corn snakes, even a little later after that. So it's, uh, it's also learning if you have a species that you're specifically searching for like a, a choice specimen or a choice species for the evening or the day learn you know from asking friends or just trial and error you know mm -hmm. well that's we talked about that you know just between us like scarlet king snakes like i yeah. wish i could find scarlet king snakes because they are probably my favorite king snake species we have here native to this to the state um granted it's just them and eastern kings but scarlets are cool i like they're I feel like they were kind of just thrown into that genus kind of by default because there wasn't really anywhere else to put it because yeah. they're nothing like the Easterns. Um, but I've always told or been told, check the, you know, the bark of pine trees and pine tree stumps like down oh, yeah. pine trees. I don't, I couldn't tell you how many down pine trees I've completely like raked and never found one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what gives. And I guess with so, with a species that small, I was thinking about it today, actually, with a species that small, I'd imagine you kind of have to be in a little pocket population of them to probably find them. Because I can't imagine you're like, those are going to travel very far from sort of their little, little area. Um, so maybe it's just being in the right place where they, where they, they're known to be found. Um, I don't know. But it sucks because that's one species I always want to find and yeah. never do. And coral snakes, you know, we have a good bit of them here. I haven't seen one in a long time, a live one. Right. I've um, never seen one. <laughs> but that's, dude, that's one species. Like, that's always, every year, if I do go out, that's the species I'm wanting to find is a coral. Just because it, it's funny. In person. You, you also think, too, is just you talking about, like, pulling bark off of a tree, you know? Um down by me, we have cabbage palms, right? For those of you who don't know, it's a short, more bushy palm tree. And the bark, uh, it peels off almost like a, almost like an artichoke, right? It has like plates that peel off. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll go up to a cabbage palm and we'll first, we'll search the base of it. Because as you very well know, Justin, in the Southeast, we have invasive fire ants and fire ants are everywhere. Um, if there's fire ants, there's not going to be anything else. There's not going to be lizards. There's not going to be snakes. There's really not even going to be too many bugs because those fire ants, they just, they kill and eat everything. Yeah. Um, 
but I'll check and see if there's fire ants. If there's not fire ants, I'll peel back those those plates, those bark panels, and you'll find baby corn snakes, baby yellow rat snakes, you know, maybe a, a, an actual scarlet snake, not scarlet king, but a scarlet snake. Yeah, scarlet snakes are pretty pop, like common too. I've had a lot of people text me pictures of them asking if it's a coral. Yeah. Um, and I think that just learning, like, the whole thing I was saying about checking for fire ants, you know, look and see if there's irrigation runoff. If you're herping an area and there's nothing there, look and see if there's a pipe coming out of the ground. Because the farmer from, you know, a quarter mile down the road, he may be dumping his irrigation, which has fertilizer in it, and it's not apt to, you know, house animals in that area. Who knows? But uh, I just, just going back to what uh, Cox was saying, I have a photo for Ryan Cox, if you don't mind sharing that real quick. Uh, for those of you who enjoyed my minute lecture on public land access and use, there is a professional hunter and television personality named Steve Rinella. Who Tom is a, York from Radiohead. Yeah, right. Tom York from Radiohead. It's called Steve Rinella. Uh, he has a show on Netflix called Meat Eater. Um, I have nothing to do with him. I met him at a trade show once. Like, he's awesome, but he's a legit conservationist. And check out the show on Netflix and you'll learn a lot about public land access and public land use. And the same way that these guys are, you know, hopping from mountain to mountain looking for elk, we can do the same thing looking for corn snakes. You know, it's just learning how to go about it the right way. So that one's for you, Cox. So here's, see if I can find a solid picture of it. Uh, I really want to set up, a drift fence, which it would take a little bit of time on a day off to set up, but I feel like that's like the best way to find stuff. And so basically you set up some of this tarp. Some people it looks like you use tin. Um, but the idea is you have this fence here. Critters hit this little, this, this fence and follow it and eventually fall into a bucket. And so this one looks like it just has one on the end. I've seen some where they have them every several feet. Um, they'll put like a brick or something in there. So in case it rains, they can actually, whatever gets stuck in there can actually get out of the water and not drown. Uh, but this would just, this would be a blast to set up and just see what, what you find, see what salamanders and stuff you come across what snakes. Um, I want to say, so Tony Mills, uh, who I used to work for with the Low Country Institute, uh, I want to say he found like a marsh rat in one, which marsh rats are gigantic. Um, but here's another good example where they have them on each side. Uh, this is actually Francis Marion University. Francis Marion is up in the Charleston area. It's a really awesome national park or state park. Uh so this would just be something to do at my parents' house. Like this would be awesome to see what what I come across. Oh yeah, and and just for the record, for people that are going to watch this and and learn from this, be very mindful because when you set up a a, a trap like this, it must be monitored multiple. Yeah, you have to times check it constantly. And and we do mean multiple times a day. So even if it's just like morning, noon, and night. You got to check it because animals will fall in, they'll get caught. And if it's a hot day, they can't evade, evade the, the, the sun, you know, they get dehydrated, you know, it could be catastrophic for a lot of species. So make sure that if you are doing something like this, that you're um, checking it as frequently as humanly possible. 
And it wouldn't even have to necessarily be anything crazy long. Like, I feel like you could just do one that's 15, 20 feet in a certain area and just, you know, around that tin that's laying down. Yeah. Uh, yeah just you see could, what you find, you know. Yeah. And it's also cool because it's, a good not idea. A, it's not a permanent installation so like either. Covered up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something like a, a white-tailed deer can jump over it. You know, a raccoon would have no problem walking around it or even just plowing through it. So, right. And that's the point is to like catch smaller stuff. Obviously, you're not trying to catch raccoons and possums and coyotes and all that stuff. Uh, You know, you're looking for salamanders, snakes, lizards. That's mostly what you'll probably end up finding spiders, I'm sure. Uh, Oh, yeah. So, I've been wanting to set up one of these at my parents' place for a while now. I just haven't. uh, haven't done it. I'd actually, the little lot next door to the house here, I bet you, I've seen a, a surprising number of, of snake species, like diversity wise, just within the, the year or two that we've been here. I've seen a lot of DOAs, like a couple of garter snakes, uh, a decent sized copperhead. Um, I think a worm snake at one point, which is interesting. Really? I haven't seen one of those in a very long time. That's uh, cool. I don't think I've ever actually found one here. I remember when I was in Boy Scouts as a kid up in Virginia, I found one on a playground when we were at some sort of event. Um, but yeah, I've seen a ton of DOR stuff. There's a ton of legless lizards up here uh, in my little neighborhood. Uh, I think last year, just out walking the dog, I saw one a day for a week or two. Uh, so yeah, Thomas said set up a trail cam on it. That would be cool too, I guess. Yeah, it's also about positioning trail cams appropriately, you know? Don't put a trail cam on the middle of a tree and expect to get, you know, snakes underneath the tree. Like, you know, be mindful of that. So, huh. But yeah, I think between having the gumption to just go and, and just get out there and see nature, and even if that means starting at your local park, you know, where they have, you know, the, the cliche pond with the fountain and the old lady feeding the ducks, like, those cliche parks, I found plenty of stuff there, you know, whether it be salamanders or toads or, you know, anoles or whatever. So I'm not, e- I'm not even a big salamander guy, but I love marbles. Like finding marbles is awesome because that's just they're such a gorgeous yeah. species. Yeah. You know, I mean, a- anything really like I know we've joked about this before. and It's like, oh, look, another ball python, but like. It's different from seeing a, a redback salamander or a marble salamander in a pet shop, and you're seeing it in the wild, you know? Yeah, I think I yeah. love corn snakes. I love corn, like finding wild, wild corn snakes. I love those more than the ones that you see at Daytona on the tables. Oh yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I can't. I can't tell you how many times I've found stuff that I've seen a hundred times. And it's still awesome. And then if you bring someone with you, like, for example, you know, my cousins, they live near me and uh, I love to take them out there. And it doesn't matter what we find. They're not used to seeing it. You know, so even if I've seen a, you know, Nerodia Floridania a thousand times, it's still cool to them. And then I feed off of that, too, because I got to show them that. Mm -hmm. And and that's awesome. Aside from corals. Like what's one species that you've only found maybe once or twice that you wish you found more of or you you look for intentionally? Um, obviously Everglades rats. That's like the current crusade. Um, I actually went out last night and I hit this one road that 
was one of my quintessential Everglades rat spots. And I remember, I was just recapping this last night. Um, I remember finding like a five foot male just sprawled out across the road. And it was blood red, almost as red as the neon sign in our background. And I, I just, I know I might not see that ever again, you know? So mm-hmm. I didn't keep that animal because it was, it was a big old male. Let him be in the wild. Let him right. keep breathing this thing but he's beat darwinism man yeah exactly he beat he's, all he's, the odds he's made it yeah and it wasn't like i was in a, a natural area or or a public land or whatever i was driving on access roads for cane fields so those roads are traversed a lot by big giant heavy trucks you know full of agricultural go- goods we're talking multiple ton trucks and he evaded all those trucks all these years you know so i left him be but just finding that stuff whether even if it's even if it's the ugliest one you've ever seen it just makes it all worthwhile it makes the gas worthwhile makes the money the miles the time it makes it all worthwhile um another one is the brooks king Uh, i know justin hates brooks kings but I've never seen one in the wild. And I've been going like crazy to this one stop, this one spot all the way down to the tip of Florida. And I can't find one to save my life. So I got to be doing something wrong. Got to be doing something wrong. So. You know what sucks is I was cleaning mice this morning and I looked down, you know, that giant metal shelving unit that's in there that has my grow out bins Yeah. under that. In like a corner by a post, there was a small yellow rat that was kind of curled up. I thought it was odd that it was just sitting there like it hadn't moved. Because usually, after a few minutes of you being in there, whether you noticed them or not, they start moving. And so I, I couldn't reach down there nimbly. And so I got my hook and pulled it out. And it was like degloved from on like the last third of the body. From you, from you pulling it out? No, no. I it it must have something must have got to it. I don't know okay. if it was a cat. I don't know if it was a raccoon. I don't know if it was something else. Uh, but I could tell he was kind of on his way out because he was really non-responsive and really weak. And yeah, I was like, well, that sucks. You know, it's, it's, it was probably a maybe a year old, maybe two. It was just odd because I went to go pull it out. I couldn't see the tail. So I was like, oh, cool. A yellow rat. You know, I almost always during the yeah. year see at least one in there because obviously it's they think they're it's a free, you know, it's a freaking buffet. Oh, yeah. Little do they know they can't access any of them. But <laughs> right, right, right. I pulled it out and I was like, what the hell, man? <laughs> so I, I carried him over to the wood line and kind of put him in a bush over there. And I don't know if he. He didn't look like he was going to make it. It was pretty extensive damage. So you never know, man. You may find a, a four foot yellow rat a couple of years from now with a, a messed up, scaled up, scarred up tail, you know? Yeah. I, I doubt it, but who knows? Mm. Have you found anything significant from uh, Mount Ratmore? I haven't. Really? It surprises me because I fully, I've seen, because uh, I had some some frozen i had some like amazon tree boas and a couple of chondros that had died from you know whatever uh and so i I put them in that pile to kind of decompose i like to give stuff sort of back to nature sort of my take on that Um, i just put them in the in the in the garbage i like to let them be a benefit to something right Um, right 
And I could tell a raccoon or something had been digging in there because there were some some holes in those areas where they had been buried. But Mount Ratmore, for anybody who doesn't know, is all those pine or uh, aspen shavings, pine shavings that I that I use for the mice when I change them out. They go into a giant pile uh, on the lot across from my parents' place. Um, and it's getting pretty big. And so we call it Mount Ratmore. And you would expect it smelling so much like rodents that there would be something hanging out there on a regular basis expecting a meal to walk by. But I've yet to find anything on it. I've yet to see anything. It's really strange because I know P and Cody, they had a, a they have a huge one at their place because they have all their rats and stuff. And they've talked about how on a couple occasions, you know, they see some rat snakes and stuff kind of hanging out near it. But have you thought about it. have you thought about putting a piece of tin on it? No, but that's not a bad idea. Yeah, because the thing about this is we're imagining that said yellow rat snake or corn snake is going to slither through those shavings, but it's I not don't even neat. expect that. I just it's expect them to be neat, sitting right? near it. Yeah, but but there's no there's no cover. You know what I mean? No, there's, that's a good idea though. I'm, I'm I may do that in the morning. Yeah, if you put a piece of tin on the one side that gets say the the most amount of sun, right? Not only is that heat going to be trapped under there and help decompose a lot of that stuff, but it's also going to give them the shade to evade predation. Mm -hmm. The big Sasquatch predation. Yeah. So, Well, aside from, for me, Scarlet King snakes, I have found one pine snake in my life. Really? I've never found one. Uh, so that main drag out going to my parents' place, that main paved road, yeah. me and my dad were driving one day, and this was, I don't know how long ago this was, it was years, I mean, like, we're talking probably 15. Uh, we were driving, and, and there was a snake across the road, and I knew immediately that it was a Pituovis, uh, and it was, like, right in the middle of the road, and so I saw it, my dad saw it, like, a millisecond after I did, and he, you know, straddled it, went over it, um, and we got out and it was a, it was a really nice pine. And every time I'm driving in that section, I think about it, but I've never seen another one. Uh, it wasn't a baby. It wasn't a, like a huge adult. Um, but it just kills me. Cause I mean, I would think that that means there's gotta be some out there. If one's there, the likelihood of it being an escape pet or something is slim. Um, yeah. And who's got who in that area would right. have one as a pet and you not know them. You know what yeah. I mean? It's a, it's small town, you know. That yeah, reminds so me. I've uh, never never see any, but apparently they're out there. I've never seen a rattlesnake out there. Uh, really? Yeah. That reminds me of. I was going to tell you one story about pine snakes, but that story is nowhere near as cool as the one I'm about to tell you. So, I was forgive the helicopters in the distance. Um, I was road cruising, or I was attempting to road cruise with a friend. We were going out to this one spot on the west coast of Florida, and uh, can you hear that helicopter? Or no, a little bit. Okay, so we're driving. And the way that the highway goes, this one smaller highway, it cuts through the actual Panther Preserve. Um, there is a big giant preserve in South Florida on the southwest corner of the peninsula that is the majority of the Florida panthers in the wild, um, and there is lots of breaks in the fence line, right? So that the Panthers can go wherever they want to go. 
but where there is fence line is the high traffic areas. These fences are 12 or 13 feet high with barbed wire on top of it. And the idea is the panther's not going to jump that high and cross it. And humans can't climb over it because of the yeah. barbed wire. They don't want people messing around in their poachers, whatever. Well, there's this one access road that's pavement and it's always locked. It's always gated and it's a helipad so that, you know, if trauma hawk has to land or if fish and wildlife has to land or whatever, they got easy access. They're not taking up road space in the highway. And I remember driving by and out of the corner of my eye, there was a diamondback stretched out across that little road. So that road is probably 12 or 13 feet wide. And there was maybe a foot or two in front of the snake and a foot or two behind the snake. Massive. Probably the biggest Eastern Diamondback I've ever seen in my life. But I couldn't walk over to it because of that fence. Hmm. And part of me was like, damn, like this is a, a once in a lifetime thing. But the other part of me was like, good for that snake. Because think about how many other people would have seen that and either taken it out of the wild or killed it for no reason because they assume they were doing humans a service to some degree. But like, that's just like your pitchy office. You know, it's one of those once yeah. in a lifetime, things, you know? And there's a couple places here where there's like very healthy Eastern diamondback populations. One of them is, is Paris Island, which is one of the Marine Corps recruiting depots. Um, so obviously that's kind of out of the, out of the realm of possibilities to go out and looking around. Um, It's. I always wish I could find a cane break or something, even pygmies. I'd be stoked about, but I've like I I never see. I I honestly don't know. I've seen pictures posted by a local page that is like, you know, all about local businesses and restaurants. And sometimes people send them pictures of like some Eastern Diamondbacks, and I know they're on the island I live in, but I feel like they're they're in really low numbers. Yeah, I can imagine that. It would be cool if someone was focusing on it, you know, the barrier island species and try and maybe, you know, increase those numbers to some degree. I think that'd be an awesome project. You know, mm -hmm. barrier island species are so few and far between these days. And it, I think it's, I think it's 50% human development because we do love our barrier islands. But I think the other 50% is there's so many small, and I mean, small islands that nobody even realizes because they're really not even on the map and how many small pocket populations are, you know, jumping from, you know, rock to rock to rock or what have you. Um, there's rumored to be an Island in the keys. Um, I can't remember what the hell they called it. It, it had some funny name uh, like Bob's Island or something. But if you look on the map, it's not there. Any map you find that Island is <laughs> not there. Doesn't exist. But it, but if you go on Google Earth, oh, it's there. And it's maybe two acres, an acre and a half. But apparently the only thing that lives on that island are silver eastern diamondbacks and shorebirds. That's it. And I've been trying to find someone who is, has a boat and is willing to take my ass out there. Cause, and that's the other thing too, is it's so off the beaten path in terms of like waterways and canals and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Like, it's not, it's not like, Oh, we're on Key Largo. Look, there's a little Island right there. No, no, no. It's like off in the cut and no one goes there because they, why would they? There's no reason to go there, but there's supposed to be literal silver Eastern Diamondbacks. So it's interesting. 
you know. And then there was that that one Eastern Indigo that was found in Sanibel Captiva. Do you, did I ever tell you that story? I don't think so. So the islands of Sanibel and Captiva, uh, which is over by Naples, Florida, on the Gulf Coast, um, there's a couple smaller islands that are all linked together, right? And it's a tourist spot. You know, it's beautiful shell stone beaches, calm, very little waves because it's the Gulf. Um, a lot of retirement communities. It's a nice area. Um, well, a resort opens up on the beach and the resort has their grand opening. And I guess the day after their grand opening, one of the guests freaks out and says, there's a giant black snake on the beach. There's a giant black snake on the beach. So uh, the Sanibel Island Captiva uh, research facility where they have a bunch of, you know, marine mammals and shorebirds and stuff like that they do a lot of research they go and they find it and they find a six foot eastern indigo snake just chilling on the beach and when they went there it had happened to go up on like the pool deck and was like slithering in between like the pool tables and stuff because it's not used to having a resort on its island you know so they found that one indigo and that sparked a human curiosity and i'm pretty sure they're up to nine or ten adult animals in the island that they found and you know cataloged hmm. and uh it just goes to show you that that those barrier islands man they they hold some secrets they hold some gems so up in aiken if you're going towards like augusta and and towards georgia but you go through south carolina and then cut over there's this place called the savannah river site <clears throat> And it's a couple miles where like, there's a bunch of signs that say, do not stop. No photography, no nothing. It's a nuclear reservation. And every time I drive through there, man, like it's just prime real estate for stuff. Like, oh yeah. If I, if I could get out and look around there, dude, it would be awesome. But well, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> formulate, uh, formulate a proposal and you gotta not gain access. Happen. Not going happen. Never say never, my friend. Like I, they never. have, they have signs and stuff. And I think if you do stop, they have some way of monitoring and people come out just kind of like with the orange grove and that guy. Yeah, but, but I'm not talking, I'm not talking about, uh, uh, trespassing. I would never, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about use your abilities that you have and propose that you'd like to gain access to the property and formulate a way that is, appealing to whatever it is and go for it. You never know if you don't try. When I was driving back from Augusta a couple, couple weekends ago, uh, there was a few spots that I actually wanted to stop. There's like where they had cut some trees down and stuff. So there was a bunch of, you know, fallen logs and whatnot. And I roadside timber been, been like cleared out a little bit. Yeah. And so I was really tempted to stop and look around, but I didn't have a field hook or anything heavy enough to handle that kind of stuff. But fortunately, I will soon because I ordered a field hook finally after years of telling myself I need one. Our boys at Venom Life Gear and Get Hooked should be sending me one hopefully within the next couple days. Hell yeah. Yeah. So so which hooks did you wind up getting? So I got one of the Palamas hooks, the Mike Clarkson Excellent. signature model. Uh I got that in the, I believe, the 32-inch. Because we, you and I were talking about that, and that's actually yeah. something we should touch on a little bit as well. Because sure. I'm partial to shorter hooks. Right. I don't like crazy long hooks. Like the field hook, that's one thing, because you're using that to sort of as an extension to reach and, and move stuff. Right. Uh, but when it comes to like actual hooks, 
I tend to gravitate towards shorter ones just because I feel like I have more control. Uh, it's not as clunky, if that makes any sense. Sure, um, absolutely. And so I ordered, I asked you what your opinion was on sort of the ideal hook length for stuff if you're out and about. And you said never go under 30 inches. Right. That's my, my personal opinion. Elaborate. So, all right. So assuming we're not predominantly working with something that is potentially dangerous, i.e. venomous, right? Mm-hmm. If we're dealing with a baby animal, a neonate animal, you have a neonatal hook, right? Very thin, you know, aluminum, graphite, whatever it may be. Um, you're not going to bring that in the field. You're not. Um, well, you, I will say I ordered one of those smaller Viper hooks to keep in my car in the event that I do come across something smaller and don't want to have to get the massive, you know, the full size. Sure, sure. And, and and that's something that I usually, I cover with a lot of a lot of venomous husbandry stuff. And that's learning how to use a big hook with a smaller specimen. Um because I, I don't like carrying little hooks out in the field because I feel like I feel like I'm gonna lose it. I, I know myself. I'm gonna lose it. It's small. It's light. You know, even though they're brightly colored, I'm gonna lose the friggin' thing. So for me, I will never go below a thirty. Typically, um, the uh, Phil series or Wolf series, or whatever the hell we're gonna call the one I had uh, Woody make for me. Um, that one I believe is thirty-two including the the grip and handle mm-hmm. uh, i don't recall what you'll probably the darth lapis the darth lapis model i love it i love it um so my love of the 30 inch came from working with bigger lapis because i am short and i have a short wingspan my, my arm is short <laughs> and i found that if i have a let's say i have a seven foot snouted cobra right that's a big animal it's literally taller than I am. Um, by a lot. I, by a lot. And I need to, I'm obviously tailing the animal. I need to have my weight ratios balanced appropriately. And I can't do that with a 40 or a 50 inch hook because I'm stretching myself out too far and I can't distribute the weight evenly. So what winds up happening is if we break the snake into thirds, right? The first third the middle and the third third, which would be, say, a few inches to maybe a foot in front of the vent. If I break it down to the thirds, the tail is essentially the pivot point in my left hand because I am right-handed, right? And now I'm balancing either just in front of the cloaca or at the cloaca in my hand, in my left hand. And then the break between the first third and the second third is on the is on the hook head itself, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it be on the, on the foot of the hook or in the actual loop. And I'm balancing this point, right? I'm essentially using my left hand as a second hook, right? The longer the hook is, the least amount of distance I can have between the two points. Mm -hmm. So I would rather have a shorter hook with more body of snake drooped in the middle and be more comfortable and be better balanced than stretching myself out with a big old 45 or 50 inch hook. And that's because I'm short because my, my arm isn't that long and I'm, I'm, I'm low, I'm low center of gravity. Well, maybe that's, that's why I like shorter hooks is I do have longer arms. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know for me, it's like a dexterity thing. Like I don't mind longer hooks, but if you're dealing with something slightly heavier bodied, it kind of, like I said, it gets a little clunky. It gets a little, you kind of lose right. some of the fine motor. I won't say motor function, but you know what I mean? Right. Um, right. You just you you don't have the same dexterity, and I 
I find myself even when I'm doing stuff with like the Jansen I or the the you know the Cyania when I'm moving them around. Um, you know that I have one of those Viper hooks, Viper series hooks from from Get Hooked. I think it's 18 inches. I could be wrong. Maybe. I think it's 18. Yeah. Um, and that I mean that works well for those. Sometimes I don't have that immediately within reaching, and I have some shorter ones that are I don't know. Uh, probably less than 16 inches. Uh, and I just, I, for some reason I find it easier to work with like those Jansen and I with a slightly shorter hook. And I don't know. It's just always sort of been the one that I, like I said, I sort of just gravitate to. Yeah. And like with those Jansen, I mean, were they five foot? Uh, the females probably somewhere between four and five. The male's okay. a little smaller, but. So those, like for example, those Jansen and I, I, I got the travel series um, because I wanted to test it out. I wanted to see what the hype was about. And dude, mm -hmm. that is that is the one hook I use the most in my room because it's so well balanced. The, the grip is perfect. The and that's the 28 inch. Uh, I think it is the 28. Yeah. Okay. Because that's what the that's what the Palamas hook was by default was the 28, but you could go longer. And so that's why when I asked you, 28 seemed slightly short for me. Actually, it's a 30. I'm just looking at the website okay. right now. It's a 30. Um, but, like, I would use that travel hook on those Jansen and I, and I know that the whole point is to keep distance from the head of the animal, but I know that I could comfortably have my elbows bent, almost perpendicular with my body, and be able to cradle those Jansen and I perfect with that shorter hook. Mm -hmm. Even though I don't have any resistance against my forearm, because the hook is shorter, because I'm able to balance the snake and break it into those thirds appropriately, I don't have as much weight and strain on the hook. Yeah. Where I would need to balance it on my forearm. So, like, that's perfect. Now, don't get me wrong. If I've got a five-foot Eastern Diamondback or I've got a, a five-foot Gaboon Viper or something, and I need I need to make distance with the snake between me and the snake, I'm totally going to a 40-inch. You know what I mean? Because mm – -hmm that snake is going to whip around and, and do a 360 on me so fast that I need to have distance. I also like a 40 inch so that I can push stuff away. You know, we always talk about using a hook like a shepherd's crook and, you know, directing the animal, yeah. you know, um, and that's that you can't do that with a 30. You, you can't, you're putting yourself in harm's way. So you, there is no one hook for everything. We have multiple hooks for a reason, but in terms of an all purpose hook, I like the 30 because I, I can do a lot with it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I've even taken the hook and spun around. I've held the foot of the hook and just like pushed a snake back with the, uh, with the rubber end of it yeah. because it, it gave me that much little extra. You know what I mean? You just got to play with it. Yeah. I just, the 30, 32 seems like a happy medium. I have a Midwest hook in my car. I don't remember how long it is. I need to look, uh, and even that feels slightly longer than kind of what I, what I'd, what I'd go for now. Let me see if I can figure out what length it is. But I'm so glad I finally got a field hook, man. Yeah, man, you're going to have a lot of fun with it. You are. Just for years, I'm like, I need to get a field hook. I need to get a field hook, and I have yet to do so. Now you have. No, I could just measure the one I have and, and know, but I don't know. But I'm excited. 
the I'm still trying to decide. So I have my Midwest hook in my car. I'll have the field hook in my car. I'll have the Viper series hook in my car. That Palamas hook. I mean, that was made like Mike did a ton of R and D literally across the world with different versions of that hook to see which one was the one that worked best for him. Yeah. But I kind of want to save it for my room and use it for the Jansen eye instead of the smaller hook and like have something that's made for larger snakes. <laughs> yeah. Right. But at the same time, it's like it's for, for the field, you know? Sure. Sure. And then, and the, and the Palamas is in the 30. 32. 32. 32. Sorry. I believe. Um, now, your field hook, to the best of my knowledge, there isn't a field hook on the website, is there? No, there's not. So they do make them uh, for whatever reason. They just don't have them on the website. So it's not like they're, it's like a secret or anything like that. I think you just have to contact Woody or Brent about it. Sure. And then, they, so they do make them and they do sell them. They have them at shows. They just, they're not on the website. I don't know why. Do you know the composition of the field hook? Okay. I know it has, uh, so it's got those notches in the in the actual foot, and it's an L, it's an L foot. Yeah, cool, cool. And then uh, it's still an aluminum shaft, and you know if it's 40, 45. No idea. I just yeah. I texted Woody and said I put in an order, but I need a field hook added to that, and he said cool. You know, send me X amount of dollars, and okay. I don't know what awesome. I'm getting, but yeah, man, I have uh, uh, Matt and Jamie bought me a Zegel field hook. And uh, that field hook is probably the best field hook I've ever used. Now, I haven't tried one of Woody and Brent's, but that Zegel, man, I have lifted stuff that's hundreds of pounds. Like, like. Well, that's old. what they're made for. They're made, yeah. like, to be yeah. able to. I mean, they call them log rippers for a reason. You know, it's yeah. like it's meant to, yep. to grab stuff and. Yeah. And talking know, to you play. about, talking to you about, like, L hook stuff. A lot of like a lot of South Africa, they love their L hooks because mm -hmm. most of their stuff is thinner bodied, longer snakes. Um, and it's learning how to keep the hook head at an appropriate angle when compared to your body so that you don't there, there's not a need for the you. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that was yeah. that was one of the things like one of the original models that Mike had when he was, you know, testing out the the palamas hook was it had a very tight v on it right. it wasn't an l but it wasn't a u it was it was a much tighter it was more like that right rather than you know I yes can't do it with my fingers you know what i mean yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so i asked him about that because that was something i was very interested in he's like it's great for smaller wiry snakes but you're kind of limited to that with that with that style which makes sense because obviously if you have something like that doing you know a larger eastern diamondback or whatever you know big nerodia like it's going to be a little little wonky um, yeah yeah and, and, and like we were just talking about whether it's a big giant green nerodia that's mm -hmm. full of babies or it's a big old dimeback it's also positioning the foot of the hook so that you're covering more surface area of the animal yeah. and you're not putting a stress point on one or two individual segments of vertebrae right um just to go back to some of the comments real quick you know dustin was kind enough to answer uh Johnny Barrett says, can you take a hook on an airplane? I'm planning a camping trip soon, and I'm not sure if I should try and bring it with me. Uh, I would say 110% bring it with you if you can stow it on the plane in some regard. Hang on one second. Venom, uh, get hook does do, like the, I think the travel size is the 28, if I'm not mistaken. 
like to be able to fit it in a, I guess, a standard bag. Let me see. I'm looking on the website right now, but so it, I've never brought a snake hook on a plane. I know people that have bought um, travel golf club luggage, and they've packed all their snake hooks in like those hard shell tubes that are meant to travel with your golf clubs or like put a golf bag inside it. Um, they work really well for snake hooks of all different sizes. Me personally, it's a little more expensive, but it's completely worth it. I ship my equipment to wherever I'm going. So, you know, this, uh, my Arizona trip a few years back, I uh, was staying with a friend, whether you're at a friend's house or you're, you know, in a hotel or whatever, um, I will get a long cardboard box and a bunch of packing material and I will ship I'll overnight my hooks to wherever I'm staying or where, where my destination start is, whether it be a friend's house or a hotel or what have you. If it's a hotel, you just, you know, pick it up at the concierge desk or whatever. And it may cost more because the shipping is expensive, but I don't have to travel with it. I don't have to worry about them getting lost. I can insure them. You know, you can't insure your luggage on an airplane. If it gets yeah. lost, it's lost. If somebody walks off the little carousel, they say, oh, look, golf clubs, and they steal them. You're not getting <laughs> They're going to be disappointed. That's it. They're gone forever. <laughs> You know? I can't um, smell this shit. Yeah, right. So, uh, <laughs> what are these friggin' poles? So, I always ship stuff overnight. So, if I'm flying out on a Sunday, uh, I will ship it out Saturday for Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening delivery. And that way, when I land, it's there waiting for me. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm leaving, you can ship it out the same day that you're flying out because you're going home. Who cares? You know, you're going to beat it there, you know, and that that's always worked really well for me. I also like the ability that I could pack other stuff that I wouldn't be able to bring on a plane, whether it be fire making material or knives or uh, any kind of camping equipment that is kind of bulky or cumbersome. You know, it may add weight to the package, but let's say you want to bring an extra backpack and you want to roll that backpack up and stuff it in there. Or if you have some electronic devices, whether it be, uh, uh, solar panels or water purification or whatever, you can just ship all that with the hooks, overnight it, and there it is. Making sure people remember 10% off. If you use the code THP at checkout. Hell yeah. What is your what is your thought on that center grip? On like I know some of those Midwest hooks have that foam center grip. Um there's all right, I'll I'll just speak freely. Um I hate that center grip. Um, I've seen a lot of people get in a lot of bad situations because of that foam center grip. Uh, you have a snake, uh, you have a snake that is faster than you think, and it loves to climb that hook. And at one point it was on a nice smooth texture that it had barely any traction. All of a sudden it hits that grip and it's like a springboard. Mm. You just gave it that much more traction to get closer to you. Um, they also tend to fall apart a lot more. Um, they're usually like a dense foam, not yeah. rubber, and they tend to peel and flake and they kind of disintegrate your hand. I, um, I like the idea of having the ability to hold the hook closer to the head, almost choking up on it, if you will. However, it's so much more cumbersome. And if I'm working with a specimen small enough that I can get that much closer, I would wholeheartedly prefer a different hook. So, like, for example, I have the Pro Series from Midwest, the titanium one. Yeah. Uh, and I'll be honest, up until up until 
the the Darth Alapis hook. Um, <laughs> that was my favorite hook, man. That hook was so cool. It is stupid light. Yes, it has the foam handle in the middle. I cut it off. I took a set of paper scissors and I just went and ripped it off. Um, the only problem with a hook like that is that if it gets dinged in any way, I don't know if it has something to do with the titanium that's in it, but if it gets dinged or it flexes in any way, the next time you go to do that same thing, it snaps. Mm. So, and I don't know if that has to do with it being the titanium hook or if it has to do like harmonics wise, you know, or if it has to do with it being the length that it is, because it's very long. It's, it's a 52 inch hook. Um, uh, it's too long, man. It's, it's too long of a hook. Um, and I feel like if you have a hook long enough to merit that foam in the middle, it's probably too long of a hook. Yeah. I know I kind of answered that question backwards. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not a fan of the grip in the middle. Have I used a hook by holding it in the middle? Absolutely. Should I have used a smaller hook? Absolutely. You know, you, you work with what you have at the time. though. So some people may like it. And, and somebody who's using it on a, on a big, you know, agitated retic or, or something like that, that, that sure go for it. You know what I mean? I'm dealing with, you know, cobras and big rattlesnakes and stuff like that. I don't want that foam in the middle. So how do you feel about tongs? Excuse me. Um, I love them and I hate them. So kind of how I feel about them. Yeah. They're great and all, but then when it comes to actually having to use them on something, especially something that's fast. Yeah. I feel like there, there's more of a risk that you're just going to end up fucking that snake up rather than so, actually capturing it. Yeah. Um, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but everyone knows about the gentle giants from Midwest. Yeah. Uh, those are great unless you have a tiny snake or a thin snake. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was because of Dr. David Williams doing his uh, can-I or can-E research in Port Moresby on the pop on the pop and tie pants that they made the M1 tongs, which are half the head size of the gentle giants. So it goes it goes from being, you know, this wide to like that yeah. wide. Uh, more pilstrom in size and shape. So I bought those specifically because I deal with a lot of thinner, more high-speed stuff in the past. And I jokingly would call them, it's my Cobra got behind the couch tongs. Um, no, I have never had a Cobra get behind my couch. Um, but to me, they're the Alamo. If you've encountered a situation where you can't get this animal on a hook, you know, you've exhausted your resources, maybe you're stressed, maybe you're by yourself, maybe the thing has gone into like your rack system or it's gone under a piece of furniture and it, you're, you're, just, you're just having a hard time. That's your Alamo. You can safely grab that animal, drag it out and start from scratch. Um, they still need to be, you still need to learn how to use them. You can't just grab a snake with them because there's a high chance that you're going to break a rib, crack a vertebrae or pinch the crap out of that snake. Mm -hmm. Every single snake that gets grabbed by anything is going to lose its mind. And it's going to go, if it wasn't already at 50 or 60 miles an hour, it's already at 100 by the time you've grabbed that animal. So in the field with like rattlesnakes and stuff, I think it's great for someone who is inexperienced because they are safely, they put themselves safe in a safe distance. They're safely picking the animal up 
placing it in a receptacle or moving it across the street or whatever, that's fine. And, and you can train yourself how to not squeeze so hard. But with those M1s, the Gentle Giants, it makes it a lot easier because it makes it very difficult to, to crush that animal. Yeah, it's the water surface area, and it's got the rubber to keep, you know, that creates the drag. You know, and pilstroms, I think pilstroms are fantastic, but they're snake killers. Yeah, and I, you know, it's funny, because we were talking about how I was flipping tin, and I had those pilstroms because I was tired of having to use my hook to flip, you know, eight-foot pieces of tin, and so I just got those. I I have a pair of pilstroms that my parents got me for Christmas when I was, like, 13. Sure. Uh and so I had them and I flipped a black racer and I was like, I want to grab them, but I, it's kind of hard to gauge, especially with the cheap ones. Cause these weren't like super expensive. These weren't like Midwest brand. This was just like the Pakistani eBay kind of, <laughs> kind of deal. Sure. The, the uh, flea market pilgrims. Yeah. And so it's kind of hard to gauge exactly how much pressure you're putting on that, on that animal. And, you know, I just like, I flipped that, that racer and I was going to go grab it. And then I was like, I just, I knew I didn't trust myself with it, you know? Sure. And sure. It was great for flipping stuff and, you know, getting a good grip on something to, to turn it over. But right. other than that, I was like, I don't want to use this on, on an animal. So if you look at the original patent for Pilstrom tongs, you can see that they may not have had the snake in mind, but they knew exactly what they were doing because if used correctly, Pilstrom's, won't hurt the animal. The problem is it is so easy to use them wrong, to yeah. use them incorrectly. And by what I'm saying is, is that if, let me see if I can get the original patent drawing because the patent drawing is, is beautiful. Um, I'm pretty sure I had it saved at one point. So Pilstrom tongs, for those of you who are unaware, uh, Pilstrom's were the first patented snake tongs. Um, and they have a alligator cl- mouth to it you know almost like a like a trap you know um i had it in my favorites where is it and the goal was to be able to pinch the snake almost like scissors lift it up move it do whatever and even close on the snake enough for the snake to turn its head back and then be able to throat it with the tongs Mm -hmm. And then be able to grab by the head. And I know a lot of third world or developing world areas, they do that trick when they want to, you know, grab by the head. I don't like it because it's a real easy way to break a snake's neck. Yeah. Um, Which does not take a lot. Yeah. Pilstrom tongs. So, and drawing. Oh, excellent. Here we go. Every time I use mine, I'm I'm using it and I'm saying I wish this was just a hook. I just I find hooks so much more yeah. easy to to use. I'm feel much more confident with that. You know, I'm not gonna I don't have to worry about right. hurting anything. Sure. They're, I mean the pilstroms are heavy, like they're they're not it's just it's I just I, I prefer hooks. Right. So when we talk about using pilstroms appropriately, um, so you can see back here, you guys can see my mouse. Mm-hmm. So back here, I have a pistol grip with uh, essentially a trigger, a palm trigger. And, you know, I'm going to squeeze that with my fingers and press it inward. And by doing so, 
there's a series of cables and springs that go down the shaft to the tongs, and then the bottom jaw here doesn't move. The top jaw recesses back down and it closes, you know, like an alligator. If you were to get the snake in this area here, there's a very, very low probability of damage to the animal. However, if you're a centimeter or two back to here, or like right around here, you can kill that snake. You can snap that snake's neck. You can break its back and cause serious, serious damage. And most of the time, people do that un unknowingly. They, they didn't mean to do it, but, but they did. Um, now, let's look at the... Uh, stop the screen share. Let me pull up the, the Gentle Giants. Midwest, and you can see the, the vast difference. Daniel Lopez, who's one of the interns at RPI, uh, said stony L hooks all the way. I've actually heard a lot of really good things about his hooks. I like that he has those polycarbonate hook ends instead of the metal, which I know Jake has talked about liking more because you don't have the reaction of the cold metal or hot metal if it's been in your car. You know, right, right. Uh, but that's another one that I mean, I don't know if that's something I'd use in the field, like right. in inside. That's that's perfect. But so here we see the gentle giants. Um, the head is very very wide. It distributes the the pressure evenly across the snake's body. Mm -hmm. More surface area. Uh, right. You can still pinch the animal in this little notch here, but the the idea of this one is to do the opposite of the pill strips. I want to put more of the animal in here on the plate, but I still want to avoid that hinge point, you know, because there is that spring and there's a lot of pinch factor that's in there. Now, if we simply go to, and we do this, and we look at the M1s. So going back to that story with uh, Dr. David Williams, you know, he's catching all these pop one tie pans in rubbish on the side of the road and the gentle giants, they, they just don't fit in the rubbish. Mm -hmm. So, Midwest slim these down. And again, it, they, it could have been a myth story. I don't know where I heard that, um, but they slimmed them down. They made it for more, more high speed stuff, more thin bodied stuff. This is what I own. These things work like a million bucks, but these are literally my Alamo. This is, I'm out of resources. I've exhausted myself. Maybe I'm getting frustrated, whatever. I'm, I'm not going to use these unless I absolutely freaking have to. Now, because they are so long, I like them a lot because I'll use them as a second hook in terms of double hooking. So mm -hmm. I can gently, and I do mean gently, grab the snake, slide it towards myself, lift it up, get a gap between the snake and the ground, slide my primary hook through. Now I can release the M1s. I can pick that snake up on a single hook while keeping the back third still on the ground, shimmy the M1s underneath it, and use that V cutout, that alligator mouth V, as a second hook. But now I have to shift my hand from the actual pistol grip to holding the shaft in front of the grip. Mm -hmm. So it, it is versatile. It is usable. It, it's a technique that I've shown people before. Is it for beginners? Probably not. Um, but if well, you, I like that they have that that stop too. So where like if yeah. you're holding it, it has that that little notch that sticks out that helps with yes. you know, some leverage and. Sure, absolutely. And I've put my, I put my, between my ring finger and my middle finger, I've put the trigger in between there to kind of give me a little more leverage uh, when I'm holding the the actual head of the pistol grip. Um, but again, if 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 you're just getting into this, 
and or maybe you're you're curious about snakes but you're not apt to using a hook and you want to just move them from the front yard to the tree line behind your property this thing works like a million bucks i can't, I can't recommend it enough but it is my last resort it's, it's my alamo mm -hmm. and the next episode of venomous etiquette videos i'm going to go over a lot of tools um it's taken me a long time because i'm i'm, I'm trying to revamp stuff and trying to piece more clips together and show more product and more tools and stuff. But, uh, but this will definitely be covered in, in the next episode. Sometime in the next six months when we actually get it. Yeah, I know. Adobe Premiere is kicking my ass. So you are struggling. Yeah. But, hmm. but I'm glad you got some venom life gear, man. It's yeah. Awesome. I mean, I now have like 10 hooks, so now, I've got the very first one I bought is still at my parents' house. Actually, I need to go. My dad was using it for some of the crazy ass Eastern Kings he had. Oh, nice. I was going to say, you know, my favorite thing to do with Pilstrom tongs is <clears throat> removing water bowls. Yeah. Because the hook on the front of the Pilstrom, providing the bowl isn't too tall, mm -hmm. I can slide the bottom jaw under the water bowl squeeze the trigger that front hook grabs under the lip of the water bowl and i can pick the whole water bowl up and out and change the water bowl clean the water bowl without actually removing the animal so i, I do enjoy them a lot for that i mean i know that's not their intended purpose but just another tip or you could be a real man and just reach in and grab it yeah yeah i got some snakes that <laughs> they ain't playing that i actually uh right before we were doing this i was doing some, some cage maintenance and such. And uh, my Nubian was fired up. So I managed to get some quick shots of him. Forgive the uh, poor quality of photo. I won't. But that's the noobs. Look at that that's angry bastard. Yeah. This was literally as I was trying to <laughs> trying to use those pilstrums to take that water bowl out and he was just like why are you in my cage why do you why do you hate me <laughs> so I, I got a I got a couple shots of him fired up <laughs> just not a happy camper I love the two dots yeah it goes back to that whole you know butterflies having the two dots and turtles having the two dots and but he's I, had a great to, I had to separate the Jansen I earlier to feed him and uh, it took me about 10 minutes to get the male out of there because they're constantly like as soon as you touch them with the hook they go they move and they go to some other opposite corner of the cage and then they were in the the giant uh, cork log that I have in there the cork round mm -hmm. and they were both on top of each other crammed in there because they knew I was in there trying to do something with them and it was, I wish I had filmed it. It was almost comical. Just, it's like, I'd finally get him out of the cork tube and he'd go out and around. But then I, he would, I like I would, the female would start kind of coming out the other side. And so I'd have to stop her. And then he's gone into the other end of the cork tube and gone back inside. And I was just like chasing him around. It was nice. It's like uh, Benny Hill. <laughs> yeah. The Benny Hill music playing in the background. Yeah. 
um, I can't wait to come back up to your house and show you how to use that hook with them Jance and I. Which hook? The Palamas hook? Any hook, because clearly you're Benny Hill struggling. No, I just I have so much stuff in there. Like I have it packed out with branches and fake plants and background oh, and all right, all right, all right. So like there's plenty of spaces for them to to get away from me where I and you know it's funny like they they're they're quiet as hell. Like when they move and they move fast, normally you would think you would hear some sort of like rustling with the fake plants and stuff. You don't hear any of that. And so like I remember one day not that long ago, I was I think I was separating them again or I was doing something. I was cleaning the females' cage, replacing something and. uh like I was looking for her and trying to pull her out and I'm like, man, where the hell is she? And then I look over and she's like in the corner ready to go. And I had like no idea. And so I look over and she's just sitting there like you doing the long tongue flick. Oh yeah. Slowly moving forward. And I was like, shit, they're just, they're, they're agile. <laughs> I love it. It's really no surprise that they're, you know, they're, they're often found in trees and stuff. Cause I'm sure they just glide through it, man. Oh yeah. Like Bruce Lee. Yep. Super cool. Uh, so update on the Cyania. Yes, please. Um, I ended up with a total of six. Nice. I had uh, one egg. It was an eight egg clutch. One one egg went bad pretty early on. Um, and then I had one baby that was dead in the egg full term for whatever reason. That sucks. Um, and then the other six of them uh came out over the course of like three days cool so all look really healthy all look those are the ones that you cut and then you you said you you touch them just to make sure that they're good yeah <clears throat> so like i did it with condos too so when you if you cut eggs i'm actually i'm thinking the next clutch uh i'm not gonna cut them i'm just gonna leave them and see it's it's just the thing like the thing with boiga is the eggshells just so thick and obviously they've adapted to figure out a way to get out of that. Cause if it was so thick that they couldn't get out, they'd be extinct. Um, but I know like my first clutch, I had a lot that were dead. I, it was a nine egg clutch. I only ended up with three babies, uh, a handful, like three of those, three or four of those died full term in the egg. Um, I had a couple that died after they'd come out, but when you open them, like if you take like the cuticle scissors and you just very gently touch the body like they, they flinch like they respond sure sure um and so you can tell when one's dead in the egg because it's like rubbery you know they don't like a there's no movement but b it just there's right. a, it's very firm sure <clears throat> so this time i cut them all checked them made sure i cut it enough to where when they do decide to come out like they have access to air uh because i think you know that some of that they they pop out some of them will and then they go back in the egg and then for whatever reason they just suffocate in the album and then they don't they don't find their way back to that hole. Uh, yeah. So all six look really healthy. Um, this time I'm waiting to feed, like attempt to feed after they shed. Last time I tried it beforehand, I got no response. So this time it looks like I'll just wait until first sheds. Then I'll offer up some food. Cool. Let's see where we're at there. And I didn't do water bowls immediately with this one either. Cause I had one, the last clutch that drowned. And I think, I mean, they come out really small. I use, for a six quart tub, a fairly large water bowl. Um, and so I figure it's just better to wait to, to put in a water bowl with those two and just keep misting them regularly. Uh, keep them nice and damp for that first week or two. Yeah. Um, and we'll see what happens. Cool, I'll probably end up pairing them up again 
in the coming weeks. The females in a shed cycle right now. Um, I'm expecting corn eggs in the next two days. The 31st is supposed to be when she's, I'm projecting her to drop. Nice. Um, no bears? And I, no, my bears, I believe, is gravid. Nice. I was checking on her the other day. She's looking extra thick. Uh, gave her some, some extra food yesterday and today. Uh, pulled the mail and she's looking, she's looking good. So excellent. And then Brad asked how the heloderma heloderma projects going. Uh, I was actually talking to Reed. So Sean at MP cages and exotics, who is a THP sponsor uh, is moving to Florida soon. He's kind of been going back and forth lately. Uh, he'll be in the Daytona area, which is only like a four hour drive. So I talked to him. I think he's projecting within the next, Three months he'll be there. And so I told, because Reed was talking about building some cages, and I texted Reed and said, Well, Sean's going to be closer to me. So don't bother building cages for those. I'll keep them in Christmas tree tubs or something, you know, when I get them for the time being until I get some cages from Sean. Um, and then, so Reed basically is, he's, he just brought them out of cooling not that long ago. So he's, he said he's going to put some, some weight on them. Um, and then, when they're ready, I'll uh, I'll jet up there and and get them. So, cool, man. Awesome. Super excited for you. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty pumped, man. Hell yeah. Look, Dom's fashionably late. Two hour, two and a half hours in, and Dom finally shows up. Hey, better late than never, right? But yeah, man, I think I think they'll be finding Christmas tree tubs for a little while, and then you know you'll have Sean make you exactly what you need and. The logistics of transport won't be so uh, perilous. You know? Yeah, it's gonna be awesome because anytime we need anything from him, just yeah. jet down there and grab it. It's like a four-hour drive. Yup. Oh. Yeah, and he'll be three and a half, four hours from me too. So, mm -hmm. we'll rendezvous. Yeah. It'll be like a mountain man retreat. Yeah. So that'll be that'll be good. Cool. Um, other than that. I mean, that's pretty much it. I'm I'm way more excited about this corn clutch than I probably should be. Uh, nice. I don't know. That's just that's like that female's five or six years old, and I was I was purposefully wanting to find a a male from the same general areas as her, and that male is is nice. They're they're very different. Like she's a much sort of brighter orange with not a whole lot of darkness or contrast to her and then that male is like a nice deep oak brown and, cool. uh, so I'm interested to see what, what those look like and it'll also be really nice to not have to wait 106 days for them to fucking hatch yeah yeah. I feel like it's going to fly like when you breed the, the cyania and the other boiga and the, you know, the incubation takes 100 plus days feels like forever mm -hmm. and then I'm sure with like the bears and the corns it's like they're, they're hatching in less than half the time it's like you blink and makes them feel like they go by faster. Yeah. So, so uh, speaking of construction and caging, so for those of you who were unaware, um, Underground Reptiles for the past oof, 20, 25 years has done a venomous hours program so that people in Florida can get their venomous hours. Um, and I've taught the class for bull. 10 years now. Um, and uh, because of the recent law change in 2019, 
there hasn't been any venomous at the retail store, at Underground's retail store in DFO Beach, Florida. Um, most of the animals, a lot of the animals were mine. I just took them home. Uh, some of their stuff, you know, wound up getting sold or moved to their, their farm. Um, but we finally finished renovations of the retail store and they made my room. So here is the room. It will be predominantly for display. The animals won't necessarily be like breeders and stuff, but that's my new micro display room. Um, it is tight. It looks tight. It is tight. Um, the species that we're going to put in there, we're obviously going to be very selective as to what we put on because we want it to be cool display animals for people to see, but I also want to keep it still a, a diverse group so that people can come and get their hours there and train and, and get a, a good assortment of, of different species under their belt. Um, and then also because of the limited space, it's got to be nothing too crazy because let's face it, it's, it's tight quarters. And nobody wants to work with the, uh, uh, a giant grump, mamba. Yeah, giant mamba, grumpy species. <laughs> it's all uh, plate glass, and there's ventilation built in, and it's completely escape-proof. So uh, I'm very excited. And once this does happen, I have two individuals lined up that want to do apprentice stuff. Um, I'm going to see how serious they are when the time comes, and maybe even open it up to some new people. So if you live in the South Florida area and you're curious, you know, shoot me a message on Instagram or whatever, and we'll try and get the ball rolling. Dorothy Lapis will teach you. We will show you the way. So, and on a separate note, I want to share this because I thought it's super cool. Those who have not watched my one episode of the Venomous Etiquette videos on YouTube, Venomous Etiquette videos, check it out. Um, I got a new logo. Uh, so a good friend of mine, Alex, who does a lot of cartoon uh, art and fan art, anime type stuff? He did a bunch of uh, he did a bunch of drawings of different reptiles for Tiki's geckos. So I said, "Hey man, I want a pseudo scientific hog nose." Yeah, yeah, shut the hell up. So that's going to be the new logo, and I'm I'm happy with it, man. I think it came out great. I think it looks good. I like it. Yeah. So I thought I'd share that, and uh, I'm probably going to put it up on Instagram soon. And uh, now all i got to do is make more friggin' videos. I was going to say, now you just got to put videos up. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, and uh, don't let me forget, i got to get with you later about music and stuff like that. So you and I will talk more about that later. What's, I mean, what's the, what's the problem with Premiere? What are you struggling with? So I did a lot of TV production stuff when I was in high school and college. And a lot of it was analog, man, like straight up dial wheels and uh, the program. Yeah, I know. And the program is so advanced that I know exactly what I want to do. I just don't know what buttons to click. Yeah, so that's the issue with Adobe stuff. Yeah. Dude. Let me tell you, like, it's overwhelming because you can do anything with it. Yeah. But if yeah. you don't know how to do like where to start or what to do, it's like a 90 degree learning curve. Legit, legit. And, and that's the problem is I have, I know I have the video clips, I have the audio, like I know how I want to choreograph it and, you know, fades here, uptakes here, you know, sound delays. Like I know exactly how I want to orchestrate it. I just don't know how to do it. YouTube, and, man. Yeah. And I'm watching tutorial after tutorial after tutorial. And the problem is, is that 
I don't have the I don't have the fundamentals of the app, of the program. So I watch these YouTube tutorials and they're going so quick. And I'm trying to like do it step by step with them. Like I have two windows open. I even have two laptops open. And uh, I'm just uh, I'm too old school. Man. I'm I'm struggling. <laughs> That's how it was for me with learning InDesign for the magazine. Man, it was like yeah, overwhelming. Now that I've got it, it's it's a breeze because there's a very large percentage of stuff on that that program that I probably will never use or need to use. Right. But getting out, like getting the <clears throat> the basics, I've I've picked it up really quick, and it's not nearly as overwhelming now. Um, but even then, like if there is something I want to know how to do, like YouTube, yeah, every, everything you want to know so is right much. there. Yeah. And like in my industry, there's a lot of bad information on YouTube. So I usually tell people, like in my line of work, I'm like, don't listen to everything you see on YouTube. Uh, be very, very choosy with the videos that you believe take everything with a grain of salt it's not the case with adobe though man like everyone seems to know their shit and they're giving you good information it's just memorizing like i learned that on on an apple like command d is fade in and fade out like i gotta learn all these hotkeys now and i'm like shit man Ugh. yeah and there's a ton of them like i don't even know how they yeah. keep up with with them or how people just memorize them all because there's there's shortcuts for everything on indesign too and it's like yeah. six key combinations and i'm like i'm not learning all those it may take me longer to get this done but i'm not right. <laughs> i'm not taking the time to, to know all these shortcuts to make it faster but at the same time it's all relative because you know if i say to you <laughs> Justin, what's the difference between uh, Dynakister Donacutus and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, Tekka Scutatus? Like, you know the difference. Yeah. We just, we, we know it. I don't know it. You don't know this Adobe shit. So, like, it's, it's all learning, man. It's back to school, right? I mean, I've used Premiere. I didn't find Premiere to be terribly difficult. Again, it's like you were saying, it's just knowing where everything's at. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's knowing where everything's at. Because I know you mentioned like just going back to iMovie and yeah, even there's Premiere Rush. Like use Premiere Rush. Have you used that? That's no, like the that. sort of the dumbed down version of Premiere. Really? Yeah. All right. Let me tr let me start with that. At least that'll get my feet wet. You know. I think it's meant to be sort of the bare bones version of Premiere, where you can just get stuff done quick. Okay. I might just do that because like it's crazy, man. On on iMovie, I would go into uh, uh, now I can't remember what the hell the name is. Not pages. It's it's basically an app that Apple has for slideshows. Yeah. And nope. like, yeah, I think it is Keynote. Keynote. That's what it is. So I would upload graphics into Keynote, animate them, and then have that translated over and put the animation over top in iMovie. And I'm like, that was super simple. The premiere is like, I am not Michael Bay, <laughs> you know? So. See, even Henry can use premiere rush. That says a lot. Cause Henry's old. And he's a savant though. He is. The venomous savant. This is true. He's also outlandishly handsome. Your beard is growing back very quickly. I noticed that earlier. Not quick enough. Not quick enough. Now you just look like the the poacher guy from Jumanji. 
<laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. Oh, man. Well, we're at 232, man. It's a good show. It's bedtime. It's bedtime. Uh, this show is brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. Check them out on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. They have a YouTube channel. I know they haven't put anything up recently, but definitely some cool stuff that you should be watching. Yeah, they got Sawus. They do, and a bunch of other really cool stuff. Yeah. So, check them we'll out. We'll see. Well, you won't see us, but you'll hear us Thursday for episode one eighteen of THP. Yeah. I'm still, my mind's blown that this is episode 70. 70, I know. I thought about it. I was like, man, it's episode 70. We should do something crazy. I was like, it's not 100. It's not 50. It's only 70. Uh, but tonight was a good show. I enjoyed it. It was. Uh, and then if anybody, if you want to make our lives easier, if anybody has anything that you want us to cover or talk about, feel free to message us with it. Because I feel like every week you and I are like, what are we talking about? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Part, like, part of me like I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? For all the people that like the Jungle Book. Who? Oh, God. I am old. Anyway. Check them out. Snakes and Stogies, episode 70. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Dom and them want to plan episode, but... That's not going to happen. No. Start your own, Dom. Snakes and stamens. Yeah. No. Uh, Andy earlier at the very beginning of the show asked about April samplers. Uh, there will be samplers next month. Uh, we just used this month for the lighters, which I'm hoping ship soon. I haven't gotten any emails or anything saying they have shipped. Um, but as soon as I get them in, I will make sure that everything looks good and get them out to everybody. And... Uh, yeah, I'll get April samplers together and then we'll do uh, another raffle next month, which yeah. is going to have some cool stuff. Um, because the Venom Life guys have Brent said he'd throw in some things for the raffle, so yep, we'll uh, we'll keep you posted on that if you're in the Snakes and Stogies group on Facebook. Yeah, check it out. We will see y'all later. Bye bye. Toodles.